have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chickie Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, lizard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, 
and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Blog Talk Radio. You're here listening to Southern Sense. Oh, geez, I'm messing up before I even start. <laughs> Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, 7-Sense.com. I'm your hostess with the least most is the radio chick, Annie. And today, Curtis is not with me. He's on a book signing tour. So I have as a guest co-host, Dr. Ernie Panza. And if my switchboard acts up, there we go. Welcome aboard, Ernie, and welcome to the zoo. Thank you so much, Annie. Glad to be here. Yeah, I mean, Curtis takes a day off and everything just goes to hell in a handbasket. You know, I, I see people already up in our, our uh, switchboard. Uh, I'm not expecting my first guest until a half hour. Uh, so I'm going to bring this person on just to see who this is. And you're here on Southern Sense. I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick to whom am I speaking? Oh, hello, this is Melania. How are you? Hello? I'm doing fine. How are you? Yes, I'm here. I can hear you. Oh, good. Hi. I just wanted to call because I am a big fan of show, and I like how I love your ideas. And I wanted oh, to thank say you. thank you. Thanks. Yes, thank you for oh. uh, for all the work you do. And I am a uh, I am a Trump supporter, and there is so little media that is fair to him, and you are, and that is great. Oh, I appreciate it, and I hope you continue to listen in. Um, I need to start with the introduction to show, Milani, so I'm going to put you on, on mute for now, and thank you for calling in. I appreciate all your support and love. Yes. Um, for the... I have to, I apologize because I start off the show with our introduction to let people know who our guests are going to be today, and then we do our dedication to a fallen hero, and after that, we take our guests and callers after that. So you throw me off a little bit, and I get a little confused. I'm a little bit of a ditz. I was born a blonde. True. <laughs> anyway, Ernie, uh, we'll just let our listeners know what we have lined up for the show today. And I want to thank those that are watching over on Facebook as well as YouTube and those who are listening here in the chat room over on Blog Talk Radio. Um, we do start off, our first guest is going to be an RNC spokesperson, Mandy Merritt. Uh, she'll be talking to us about the Trump rallies and the primary and the election cycle and all the other good stuff that's going on. Uh, it's going to be followed by Mark Mix who is the president of the National Right to Work Committee. And there are 27 states that are right-to-work states, and unions are finding their, slip, their hold slipping, and they're really trying to battle those of us that want a right-to-work state. Uh, so he'll be here talking to us about that. It'll be followed by Sandra Lee, who has a new book out called Dear Donald, Letters from a Loving Deplorable. Um, a little iffy if I'm going to be able to get hold of Sandra Lee because I've been trying to call her all day yesterday and her phone does not seem to be working. But we'll cross our fingers and maybe we're lucky there. Followed by Wilfred Riley. You know him as having the book out, Hate Crime Hoax. He's got a new one out called Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. It's a really good book. Things that people are afraid to talk about, he puts it in the book. And it's going to end up with our show with a dear friend of ours, Dan Perkins. 
he has that nonprofit for active military and veterans that suffer from traumatic brain injury or PTSD called Songs and Soul Songs and Stories for Soldiers. If you can get that correctly. Mm. So we got a great show coming up, a lot to talk about. And Ernie, I wanna be I wanna mention that you also are an author, besides being a good stand in co host. Uh, you have a new oh, book out that people yeah. can find on your website, which is your name, Dr. Panza, D-R-P-A-N-Z-A dot com, and it's titled, You Can Be Happy and Healthy at Any Age. Oh, what a true story. It's all in the mind. It's mind over matter, <laughs> and it matters a lot, right? <laughs> it oh, does man. matter an awful lot, Yes. <laughs> Well, we'll be talking about your book and all our other great guests, but let me go forward with our dedication to a fallen hero. And those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero, whether they're military or first responder or um, even someone that happens to be an extraordinary American hero. Uh, We dedicate to all these heroes. And today's show is going out to Patrol Officer David, I'm sorry, Patrol Officer John David Hetland of the Rancine Police Department in Wisconsin. His end of watch was Monday, June 17th of 2019. And this is from Fox 6 Now, written by Madeline Anderson. And it starts. Police said Officer Hetland, while off duty, witnessed an armed robbery in progress at Teasers near 20th Street and Lanthrop Avenue on June 17th on Monday night. Investigators said Officer Hetland jumped over the bar and tried to take the man down. But the 24-year-old, 24-year veteran of the Rancine Police Department was shot once and killed in the process. It's terrible. We'll get through it, but it's, I don't know, I can't explain. I'm numb, said Mel Botch, a longtime friend of Hetland. Hetland lived with his teenage son and elementary school-aged daughter, Fox 6 News learned. He had just put in a pool in the backyard for his daughter on Saturday, June 15, two days before. Botch said the two went to grab drinks Monday night at a bar called Hiawatha. Then, Hetland headed towards Teasers by himself. I think I left him around 8.30 p.m., and they said he was dead by 9.40 p.m. It's crazy. It's nuts. There's just so many people that are going to be devastated from it. It's crazy, Bosch said. Also among those devastated was Wayne Boosie, who cheered on the Green Bay Packers with Hetland each season. We went to the games, Green Bay, and stuff like that together, Boosie said. Even those who did not personally know Hetland felt the tragedy. Michelle Hyatt stopped by the scene to drop off blue flowers for a memorial and to provide comfort for the officers who still had a job to do. I just wanted to show our support. Let them know that I personally appreciate them, Hyatt said. Box News spoke with one of the owners of Teaser's Bar, who also knew Hetland. 
he did not want to talk on camera. But he reiterated what people had said all day. Hetland died a hero. He stepped in when the bartender was being robbed and lost his life trying to help. And this is from the Journal Times by Jonathan Sadowski and Michael Burke. Racine police officer John Hetland killed while trying to stop an armed robbery at Teaser's Bar and Grill at 1936 Lothrop Avenue is remembered by those who knew him as much more than an officer of the law. Beyond his selfless heroics on the night he died, Hetland was a star baseball pitcher and first baseman during his time at Park High School, a devoted father, a dedicated public service, a police union mainstay, and a police association board member. Hetland, 49, leaves behind two children, a 15-year-old son and an 8-year-old daughter, according to Jim Palmer, executive director of the Wisconsin Professional Police Association. Tragically, Palmer said, Hetland had planned to retire by the end of the year to spend more time with his family. He obviously was a dedicated public servant and just a devoted father, Palmer said. He talked about retiring at the end of the year to spend more time with his two kids, age 15 and 8. It just kind of adds something to an already extraordinarily tragic event. Hetland was off duty when an armed robber walked into teasers around 9.40 p.m. Hetland tried to intervene and was fatally shot. Because Hetland was acting to protect the public, his death is regarded as having been in the line of duty, Palmer said. I've attended more law enforcement funerals than I can count, but I think this will be the first time one involves an officer I personally knew, he said. He touches even more close to home, so I can only imagine how this must be impacting John's fellow officers. I have talked to some of them, and this is a huge loss. He is going to be missed. In 1987, the University of Minnesota was going to offer Hetland a baseball scholarship, former park coach Al Ellingham said. But the school withdrew the offer after Hetland tore up a knee playing football in the fall of that year, his senior year at Park. Coming off a severe knee injury, further athletic accolades may not have seemed to be in the cards. But he came back in the spring for more stellar performances on the baseball diamond, including a no-hitter. In the spring of 1988, he was named Player of the Year in the Big Nine Conference, was a first-team outfielder in the All-Rancine County team, was unanimously voted the Journal Times All-Rancine County Player of the Year by local coaches but Hetland had hurt his arm late in the 1988 regular season and gave up 10 runs to Orlick in the WIAA regional final. Never in my wildest dreams did I believe we would score that many runs against Hetland, Orlick coach George Teagues told the Journal Times. We've never hit him that hard. A month later, when Hetland was voted County Player of the Year, Tiggs told the Journal Times, 
As far as batting and pitching combined, I haven't seen anyone that good. In his junior year, Hetland battled, batted 500. He topped that in his senior year by batting 600. Ellingham remembers Hetland well almost three decades later. Of all the kids I coached, he was the top five, Ellingham said. He was an excellent team leader. He was like a coach on the field. He knew how to play, and he was really good with the other kids on the team. He was the guy you wanted up to bat when the game was on the line. He was definitely a good guy, and we'll miss him. Jeff Schetzel, who coached Hetland for local amateur team sponsored by the Orth Abbott Insurance, remembered him fondly. I just have an empty feeling today, he said. He was a terrific ball player, absolutely outstanding, and probably one of the hardest outs I've ever seen. He just hit the ball anywhere and everywhere, and he had a great arm. The kid could throw the ball like crazy. I remember watching the kid play and thinking, I've got to have him on my team. Luckily, he was nice enough to play for me. Scott Peterson president of the Point One Recruiting Solutions, was an infielder on that fourth Abbott team. He remembered being mentored by Hetland. I was like 16, 17 years old, and he was in college, Peterson said. I think it was about three years of many, many days of baseball together, shagging balls and telling stories in the dugout. He, along with many other guys his age, took me under their wing and helped me mature pretty early in life. I have not seen him in years, but my heart certainly feels empty today. So sad. So very sad. Hetland joined the Racine Police Department in 1995. In 1991, he received an Exploratory Officer Award, and in 2000, he received a Unit Citation Award, an Exploratory Officer Award also in 2000. The Journal Times followed Hetland as he did a prostitution sting operation in unmarked police car on State Street. After 5 p.m., it's almost sickening how many guys are out there doing this, Hetland told the Journal Times during the sting. He served on the board of directors for the Wisconsin Professional Police Association since 2007, Palmer said. He spoke highly of him, saying he was a devout, member of the board, and of the Racine Police Department. During a press conference, Merrick Corey Mason spoke of Hetland's courage and integrity and his work with the Racine Police Association Union. On the Racine Police Association website, Hetland is listed as the vice president of its board of directors. Quote, he was fighting not only to protect the city, but to fight for his colleagues to make sure they had fair and safe working conditions, Mason said. Today's show is dedicated to Patrol Officer John David Hetland. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as our first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency workers. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military, from the birth of this nation through today and into its marvelous future. 
We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
All right, that was Todd Allen Hamden. My name is America. You can find it at ToddAllenShow.com. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle of Southern-Sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the most, just the ready to any. And Curtis is not with us today. He's on a book signing. So instead, standing in in his place is Dr. Ernie Panza. Ernie, time to rock yes, and roll. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Let's do it. What a start to the show. <laughs> what a start to the show. What a start. I mean, crazy, isn't it? You never know. It's live radio, so you never know what's going to happen, don't you? That's right. Mm. You seem to now, bounce do back want to pretty mention- good with whatever happens. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, I want to mention that you have a book out that people can find by going onto your uh, website, which is your name, Dr. Panza, D-R-P-A-N-V-A, drpanza.com, called You Can Be Happy at, and Healthy at Any Age. Tell us about this. Well, uh, this was my 22nd book that I wrote, and I just wanted to write something that was easy to, easy to read, simple, and basically short. It's only 50 pages. And there's a lot of different things in the book. It taught, we talk about how to be healthy and happy, of course. And by doing that, you know, we talk about natural health. And in the book, we have uh, some foods that you should eat and foods that you shouldn't eat. Uh, talks about why we should take supplements or superfoods. Uh, 50 years, 60 years ago, we never thought about taking food supplements or natural supplements because our ground, our land, and our uh, and the crops were not sprayed with poisons as they are today. Also, most of our crops were grown in this country, not all over the world. And the problem with that is that we don't know what their laws are and what they're allowed to spray or not spray, what they do to the food or how bad or how good the ground is and what they use for fertilizer. So, you know, it's, it's behooves us to know what we're eating and then substitute sometimes when we can better food. We talk about pH balance. And of course uh, everyone should know about pH because it's a simple scale from zero to 14. Seven of course is in the middle Anything below 7 is acid. Anything above 7 is alkaline. We should try to stay just slightly above 7 in the alkaline range. We can drop all the way down to a 2 or a 1 on the acid range. The problem with that is most of the foods we eat uh, are acid. And if we're in the acid range, we're opening ourselves up for sickness and disease. If we stay in the alkaline range, uh, disease can't grow there. It's almost impossible for diseases to grow when our body is alkaline. Um, children today and adults drink a lot of soda. I uh, have to think about the acronym for soda is sipping on deadly acid because they're full of sugars and acid. So, you know, the book the book goes on talking about um, things of, of different different people wrote and different ideas in the book on, on health and such things as there's a comment in there from the Dalai Lama. There's a comment from Will Rogers who said he never met a, a, uh, a person he didn't like, that a stranger was only a person, was only a friend he hadn't met yet. Uh, it, it, it just goes on with simple things. There's some testimonials, some information or uh, something about Martin Luther King. And it, it's a very, very simple 
it comes across uh, easy an easy read and people can get it uh get something from it I think in a very short amount of time real real quick I was sitting at a meeting that I spoke at last Wednesday there was about 350 senior men at this particular meeting and I spoke at it the meeting and then the next day and I passed out a few of the books to people and the next day I was sitting at a, another meeting where I wasn't the speaker and I was sitting there next to the president of the chamber of commerce and he said uh, hey I read I read something recently he, he, he's a very comical guy and it says uh, you know that, that health is our most precious possession we have and when we're young, we will spend our health trying to make wealth. And when we get older, we'll spend our wealth to try to regain health. He said, that's pretty cool. And someone said, where'd you read it? And he said, I read it in Ernie's book. So uh, that, that's, that's kind of the concept of the book. You know, we, we, if, if we have our health, let's protect it and take good care of it. Because once we lose it, we may or may not be able to get it back. Well, I have a funny uh, feeling our and, guest is showed up. Uh, I have a funny feeling that our guest has shown up in the switchboard here, so I'm bringing them on the air live. Uh, you're here listening to Southern Sense Live with the, I'm your hostess, Annie, the radio chick. Who am I speaking to? Is this uh, Mandy? Hi, yes, this is Mandy Merritt with the RNC. How are you? I'm doing fine. Um, unfortunately, Gabrielle didn't tell me what phone number was calling in, so I was guessing and I was hoping it was you. Oh, man. <laughs> All good. Well, what a wacky, wacky year we have going on right now. And I swear, every time I turn on the news, it gets crazier and crazier. How do you keep up with this, Mandy? Well, the Democrats make it kind of fun for us, honestly. (laughs) There's always something to talk about. (laughs) We are now two early states in. We've got, obviously, Iowa and New Hampshire under our belts, and it's clear that the Democrats are in disarray. Republicans are more united and unified and energized than ever behind President Trump. And the only thing really that's clear after Iowa and New Hampshire is that far less socialism is now the mainstream in the Democrat Party. Oh, it it is crazy out there. And now, uh, while they were having the New Hampshire primary, Donald Trump goes ahead and has a rally in New Hampshire. And as usual, it is packed to the gills. Now, the place is only supposed to hold less than 12,000, but he packed it with 12,000 in there. And Lord knows how many more thousands were outside just waiting. And I find this so amazing. It's snow on the ground. I used to live in Massachusetts, and it gets wicked cold up there. And they're out there 29 hours ahead of time waiting to get in to be part of this event. I find that absolutely phenomenal. It is, and it is part of the movement that only President Trump has brought to the political environment. He continuously brings in broad new coalitions of voters. He continuously appeals to new kinds of voters. There's always broad new types of data that comes out of these voters. Just of the New Hampshire rally in Manchester alone, it was about 25% of the people that showed up to that rally were Democrats, about 17% of those people didn't vote in 2016. These are all people that continuing three years into President Trump's term, he continues to bring out new voters. 
and it shows what type of president he is. It's because he's delivered on a long list of accomplishments, not just for folks in New Hampshire, for people in South Carolina, but for people all across this country. So people want to come out and hear directly from him on those promises made, promises kept agenda, and he and it's going to be a huge reason why he will have another historic win in 2020. You know, right now, his overall rating is sitting at 49%, which is excellent. His rating on the economy is at 63%. So we're seeing these Democrats are saying, well, we had eight years of Obama's economy and my 401k tanked and I lost my health insurance. But now under Trump, well, I may not have voted for him, but wait a minute, I've got second thoughts. Because I'm seeing my job is more secure. I've got more money in the bank. I'm able to buy a house for the first time in years. Something's going right here. You're exactly right. And we're seeing those numbers continuously. Just this week, a new Gallup poll came out that showed over 60% of Americans feel that they are better off than they were before President Trump. New poll, I think it was just yesterday, showed that stock markets, again, have reached record highs. There are, Democrats may try to run against the economy, but they can't. The results show a different story. And what each and every one of these 2020 Democrat candidates are running on is a complete reversal of the progress that President Trump has made on the economy. Each and every one of their policy stances, from the radical Green New Deal to a government takeover of health care, would raise taxes on the average American family, and it would completely reverse the progress that we have seen. So for Democrats to try to run against the economy is honestly laughable, because from tax cuts to 7 million new jobs to wage growth for over 20 months in a row, President Trump has revitalized the American economy, and families are seeing it all across this country. No, what I had to laugh, though, is that, you know, the, everywhere you looked in the news, including Fox, all they talked about was the Democratic primary in New Hampshire. And very few people knew that there was also a Republican primary going on at the same time. And I decided to pull up the numbers, and I had to absolutely go hysterical because Bernie Sanders, who supposedly won the New Hampshire primary, by 76,352 votes, which was 25.6% of the Democrats voting. Their total votes in the Democratic primary were just under 300,000, at 298 and change. Then you look over at the Republican primary. Now, the best that happened was back in 96 with Clinton, when he won 76,797. But Trump this year garnered 85.6% of the Republican votes in a primary that had 19 candidates on the ballot with 120,476 votes. That, I, I couldn't have said it better amazing. myself. You are exactly right. Enthusiasm is undoubtedly on the Republican side here. Just like in Iowa, President Trump set a record for an incumbent president in Iowa. And in New Hampshire, he set a turnout record again, too. I think it was about in four decades, there hadn't seen voter turnout like that. And people, again, are talking all about how Democrats are going to show out in droves here in this a new wave of energy, but it's just not showing. There's, there's a low voter turnout in Iowa, and in, in 
in uh, New Hampshire again. It was, I think, Bernie Sanders had the low voter to low vote total in about 68 years. So these people are voters are not very excited about these candidates. And again, on the flip side, Republicans are more unified and energized than ever behind this president. And Democrats are only helping that. We saw with this impeachment sham, what Democrats have done in Washington with this impeachment witch hunt really only backfired on the Democrats. We've seen over 1 million new donors from the RNC and the Trump campaign join our team since the impeachment sham began. We've seen over 100,000 new volunteers join our team since the impeachment sham. It's really going to backfire on these Democrats. We've already seen that in every metric, and it will pay off dividends at the ballot box in 2020. You know, I have to laugh because at the New Hampshire rally, uh, Trump turned around and said something to the effect that, uh, go ahead, keep on, you know, going to these primaries, you know, let the Democrats go campaign in these states because it only makes my numbers go higher. Basically, is there any Democratic candidate out there that excites anyone? I don't think so. I don't see any excitement in any of them. You know, I think Bernie does have some enthusiasm on the Democrat side, but you certainly don't see it with Joe Biden. You certainly don't see it with Elizabeth Warren. You have to really think about how crushing those their defeats were these past couple of weeks. I mean, Joe Biden essentially had Iowa to himself, uh, and he did, he wasn't able to pull out a victory. He campaigned on winning in New Hampshire, as did Elizabeth Warren. But neither of them even generated a delegate in New Hampshire. So it really is astounding. There is a clear enthusiasm problem on the Democrat side. But we have to remember that none of these candidates hold a candle to President Trump and his record of success. And what's also important to remember is that there is this false narrative that Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar might occupy this moderate lane in the, in the Democrat Party. But that is false. Each and every one of these candidates has embraced some version of a big government policy that would only enact more government control into voters' lives at the expense of the, of the taxpayer with government control of health care, with the Green New Deal, with taxpayer-funded abortions. These are big government radical policies that are out of touch with everyday Americans. You know, it is an exciting time, and I, I've seen elections where in, in time periods where you thought that the world has gone absolutely nuts but I've never seen it as nuts as now, because even now, after the impeachment has already been put aside, there's rumbling from the House that they're going to come up with new charges and a new impeachment before the November election. Have they gone nuts? Don't they realize that every time they do this, the, the nation is going, oh, please give us a break. Leave the man alone and let him do the good job he's doing. It is. It is absolutely astounding. Democrats have been after this president since the moment that he was elected. First, it was Russia. Then it was Mueller. Then it was this Ukraine fishing expedition. And really, it is only because of a personal political vendetta. President Trump has done absolutely nothing wrong. And the only thing that Democrats are mad about is that he continues to win for this country. And they have nothing to say about it. And they know they certainly cannot compete 
at the ballot box against President Trump. So they continue to throw up Hail Marys like impeachment witch hunts, like continued investigations, because they know that they have no other way to beat him. But what continues to be amazing is that President Trump is delivering historic results like 7 million new jobs like wage growth, like new Supreme Court justices, like a foreign policy that we can finally be proud of again, even against this historic and unprecedented obstruction. So President Trump is continuing to deliver for families while Democrats are continuing to obstruct. But I do think the American people and voters can see through that and they're strong enough to know who is on their side. Well, you know, just a little aside here, because I, I came across this and I, I was actually laughing. Um, Sean Spicer, he seems to be like the Teflon guy out there. You know, he took a lot of heat for doing Dancing with the Stars. And there were people actually out there, you know, trying to get him knocked off because they, because he's a Republican, because he worked for Trump. Uh, but now he's bounced back and he's going to have his own television show. So, you know, this they couldn't knock him off of Dancing with the Stars, so they said, "Hey, you are a, you are a star in your own right. So welcome to Newsmax. I think that's awesome. I do too. And I, you know, Dancing with the Stars, as a personal note, is one of my favorite shows. And I was one of those people that was voting for Sean Spicer every single week because I thought it was awesome that he was up there showing. And I do think it speaks to the silent majority of people out there that helped get President Trump elected in 2016 and that are going to continue to do so in 2020. We are out there and we are speaking up and and out because President Trump continues to deliver and his team of people all across this country that are delivering for people every day in South Carolina and all across this country. Yeah, They're descending on us all now here in South Carolina. Matter of fact, uh, crazy Uncle Joe fled the uh, New Hampshire primary (laughs) early to come down here so it's like we're, we're just like you know and we're a red state yeah uh, but it gotta let you know that we are listened to nationwide and actually we've got people throughout the world that tune into the show and god bless each and every one that have the tolerance to do that uh so i don't want to just hype just only south carolina but we're the next target on the bullseye here so it, it's going to get very very amusing especially since we've got a hot contested seat here in District 1, the district I actually live in, uh, when Mark Sanford lost his seat and we lost the seat going over to Beer Can Joe Cunningham. So, you know, the, the eyes are on us at this point. But uh, it, 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 I have never seen an election cycle like this. I mean, I, I've watched the fall of Saigon. I've watched the impeachment of Richard Nixon. My first presidential election, I voted for Ronald Reagan, and I've seen some crazy things. But to see this, I've never seen anything so nuts. And I do think, again, with uh, specifically in that seat that you're talking about with Joe Cunningham, I think uh, the impeachment will have backfired on him as well. I mean, Joe Cunningham specifically is someone who went to Washington promising to work across the aisle, promising to work with Republicans, and really has reneged on those promises and has been just about as radical as some of these far-left wings of his party. So that's going to be uh, a promise that people are going to hold him accountable to at the ballot box and say, why did he not work with the colleagues that he promised that he would? Why did he vote in lockstep with Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in this impeachment witch hunt? And I do think that will... Uh, backfire on him tremendously at the ballot box in November. Well, I got to tell you, because I have a tea party here that I still run 
10 and a half years going strong. Um, and we were out there protesting outside of uh, Joe's office. And I had my beer can Joe sign <laughs> holding up proudly. Because <laughs> if anyone doesn't know the story, the first day that he was supposed to go onto the floor of the house, he tried to bring a six-pack of craft beer onto the floor, <laughs> which doesn't work too well, does it? <laughs> Guess not. <laughs> so, Ed, we've given him the title Beer Can Joe. Uh, but we were out there, and we were making our voices known. But we actually went in with respect into the, the congressman's office and had them put down the fact that we showed up, our name, our emails, got on his emailing list, and just letting him know where we stood on the impeachment issue. But people don't understand. It's one thing to talk about it you know, on a radio show. It's another thing to post an editorial in your local newspaper or just bitch about it at your local bar. But it's more important to actually go pick up the phone or send a letter or send an email or physically go into our congressman's or our senator's office and make our voices heard. You're exactly right. And and with this impeachment, we saw that happening all across the country. We saw voters fed up with the madness that was happening in Washington. You know, voters, everyday voters, they don't want to hear about the divisiveness. They don't want to hear about the endless obstruction and investigations. They just want their representatives to get things done, to focus on the issues that really matter. And that is not at all what Democrats have done. They have completely wasted their time in the majority by only focusing on investigations, obstructions, and delays. And that is not what voters care about. So it is extremely important. And we saw that grassroots and organic support for President Trump and for Republicans and just outrage against the Democrats and against this impeachment witch hunt happening all across the country, including right there in in South Carolina against Joe Cunningham, as you mentioned. And and it it really is powerful, and it's a movement that more Americans need to get involved with and make their voices heard. It is. It's very, very important. And uh, I have to admit, uh, uh, Ron Ron McDaniels is doing an excellent job with the RNC out there. And i got to say, our uh, chair here in South Carolina happens to be a friend of mine, Drew McKissick, is also doing an absolutely wonderful, wonderful job. I've seen the Republican Party become more conservative uh, and more in line with the Republican platform than ever before. And uh, you guys are doing just a bang-up job. i got to hand it to <laughs> all of you. Well, thank you. Chairman McDaniel, she really is fantastic. We actually just fired new uh, filed new fundraising numbers, and just in January alone, the RNC and the Trump campaign brought in $60 million, and that is all going to help fund our biggest grassroots infrastructure, biggest uh, ground game in party history, uh, helping our infrastructure in places like South Carolina and all of our battleground states across the country, and it's, it's really going to uh, pay off in November. So she really is doing an awesome job. Yeah, I got it. I, I found the part in Trump's speech uh, at the at the rally uh, where he said the poll numbers in Iowa are going up because the Democrats are campaigning there. And I put next to there <laughs> laughing. He said that is, wherever I mean, they when you go, compare and contrast the policies that they none of them hold a candle to what President Trump has done. Yeah. And I love the line where he said that the MAGA movement is built on love. 
people who love the flag and freedom and country. And he said they're united on the, by the belief that the nation must protect its own citizens. America first. Wow. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. President Trump is absolutely right. It is built on patriotism and compassion and standing up for what's right and standing up for uh, blue collar workers and farmers and trade and manufacturers. And that is all people, the forgotten men and women that President Trump has brought back into the fold. And those are the people that you see who are having new jobs and whose wages are rising and who are coming back uh, with more money and their paychecks. And that is the people that I do believe are going to turn back out and vote again in November for President Trump and Republicans up and down the ballot. Yeah, and everyone's saying, well, he's not doing anything to help trim the budget. Yet he took 7 million Americans off of food stamps and 10 million Americans off of welfare. So these people are out there earning their own paychecks, building their own lives, and being proud of the work they're doing instead of relying on someone babysitting them and handing them a check. You're right. You're right. And we have a powerful economy. So that helps a rising tide lifts all ships and a powerful economy is going to help that. Well, one thing people don't realize, it's one thing where you take someone's hand and walk them through life. It's another thing when you allow that person to be creative and build their own life there's there's a lot to say because if you if you turn around and give someone a free house and free food and free everything else they're not going to respect it they're going to treat it like you know what it's just disposable there's more coming along down the road but if you have to work for it then you're going to take care of it and tend it better you're right and i do think we have to remember when it comes to a lot of those programs, the, the power of the purse does lie within Congress. So President Trump has, uh, yes, he has some say over it, but a lot of that is like those mandatory programs lie in within Congress and the power of the purse as well. Well, it's, it's an amazing time that we are living in, and this is an amazing man doing amazing things. And I, I, some of the programs he has been putting in place in helping to secure our borders and tighten up uh, immigration the way it used to be. So now he passed that executive order saying uh, that policy where if you're on government assistance, we're not going to issue a green card. And now he's battling states like California and New York with their green light laws. President Trump is protecting our border and standing up for Americans first. And I do think people are, are proud of that and are wanting to make sure that Americans are protected and taken care of. Yeah, it's funny because I'm looking at the chat room as we're talking, and one of the things I had highlighted uh, on the speech was that when Trump said we are all children of God, and Vorp in the chat room put back says we have God back in the White House, and Obama was at war with Christians. I mean. Did you see what did you see with the prayer breakfasts under the Obama administration? Basically nothing. But what we see here now, when we, he has evangelicals and other ministers in the White House with him and working with him to rebuild our country, this is an amazing thing. And he was the first president to speak at the March for Life, and he's standing right for the rights of the unborn. It is incredible, and it's I do think uh, an incredibly proud thing to have a president that stands for that. 
absolutely. And you are correct to mention he was the first and only president to ever speak at the March for Life. You would think that would be something Ronald Reagan would do, but even Reagan did not do that. And this pro-life is is a huge movement now. We've been pandering to the pro-choice for so many years, and now we have someone to give us a voice to help propel this issue to the forefront. And people don't realize this March for Life has been going on ever since Roe v. Wade passed in 1973. It's the first time it takes center stage in the media. And again, that's something that you, when you compare and contrast it to the left, each and every one of these candidates supports abortion pretty much up until the moment of birth. And it is appalling. It's not something that Americans support. And it is completely out of step with the majority of voters. And you have to think about what that means as Americans and values and compare and contrast that to what President Trump stands for and the rights of the unborn. You know, um, when New York State had passed the law that if a woman was pregnant and if you committed a crime and harmed the woman and the fetus would be harmed also or die, it would be two separate counts on the charge. If it's murder, it's two counts of murder for the mother and for the child. You know, the that law we fought for in New York State back in the late 70s, early 80s, we got it passed. Their law that they have now here covering abortion negates that. So no longer in New York State is that unborn child viewed as a living, breathing human being. And this is this is what we're fighting. And this is why we have Trump where he is now. And I had a minister once tell me that God did not choose Trump. And I said, how do you know that? Didn't God always speak through sinners? And it, it's and what we're seeing coming out of the White House is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I do. I think it shows one side just how far left the Democratic Party continues to move to really those extreme radical ends of the party. And then we have a president that's not afraid to stand for life, not afraid to stand for the flag, not afraid to stand for those who cannot stand for themselves. And President Trump continues to be a president of first and he continues to deliver for this president and he continues to be uh, deliver on his agenda of promises made, promises kept. And I think that we are going to, we've had a tremendous three years of a great American comeback and we are only going to see so much more with another four years come November. Well, I, I got to let you know, uh, Mandy, that my normal co-host Curtis C.S. Bennett is not with us. He's on the book signing tour. So I have a backup co-host, Dr. Ernie Panza. Ernie, if you have a question, uh, yes. please feel free to jump in here. Well, I don't have a question, but I agree with everything that you two are saying. And the one thing that you hadn't mentioned uh, is kind of near and dear to my heart. Also, uh, President Trump has done so much in the last three years for the veterans. And when I go to the VA clinic in Jacksonville, I can see major differences in what goes on and the time you have to wait and the people that work there and what they do for you. And I think that that's something that uh, we can never forget because there's never been so few people, meaning veterans, that have done so much for the majority of our country. And I think that there are so many veterans in the Vietnam group I belong to in Jacksonville. There are so many guys there and women that just have a hard time and 
he has made, President Trump has made it so much better and so much easier. And the only way you would know that is if you were a veteran uh, having the needs or no veterans that have the needs and going to the clinic. So I, I agree with everything that you're saying, but my pet right now uh, is working with the veterans and particularly the Vietnam veterans because uh, when we came back, we were treated very poorly. And all we did was um, go in and to, to when we were told to do, and we did it. And, uh, you know, so we had nothing to do with where we were sent or what we had to do. And we did what we were told to do. And I really see that that, that is changing for the Vietnam vets in particular, but for all the veterans. And I, I really applaud President Trump for that. Well, Mandy, you're, you're I right. Thank message you so from... much for your service. Uh, well, Mandy, I just got a message from your your boss, Gabrielle. She says you got you got to go. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, but it's been fun talking to you guys. But the time went by quickly, so I'll be happy to come on at any time and continue our conversation because there is so many great things to talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. We always welcome you back. God bless and thank you. You guys have a great rest of your day. Thank you. All right. Okay. Mandy Merritt, uh, she is the national spokesperson for the uh, RNC, and uh, very shortly we should have Mark Mix call in as the next guest. Um, I don't know what the heck I did with his phone number, but I had it somewhere. Oh, well, anyway. Yeah, you know, i got to say that what he has done for the veterans as well as for active military is great. There's a lot more that has to be done. It's not 100% yet, but he's on the right path. And I got to say, uh, I live in a military community. I've got the Paris Island Gateway uh, Recruit Depot in one direction. I've got the Marine Corps Air Station in another. And I've got, excuse me, the Naval Hospital in another. And uh, the, the guys here, the retirees and active guys, you can see it. You can feel it in there that the, there is a change in the morale, and it's good. It, it really is a, a major change, and uh, yeah, you see it. You see it more so when you're going to the clinic uh, for like a blood draw or to see your uh, the doctor there at the clinic or for whatever reason, and you sit and talk to the guys or women that are sitting waiting for their appointments, and there's a whole different uh, atmosphere. And I see it very, very much with the people working there, like the doctors and the nurses. Uh, that, that it used to be that they they had a job and they weren't going to lose their job and they were just there uh, putting their hours and pay, picking up their paycheck. What I say now is the doctors and the nurses, they take responsibility, they take time, they want to be a friend to the patients coming in, they try to help in any way they can. So the whole thing with the Veterans Administration has changed immensely. It, it has. Like I said, it still has a lot more to go. Um, I'd like to see the lot where you don't even have to go to the VA. Right now, that's something that Trump has been working on and getting past, whereas you, if you live within a certain distance from the VA, you can pick your own doctor and go. I'd rather see the building just be there for paperwork and not for processing people. I would. That's what I'd rather see. You know. You understand what I'm saying? 
Yes, I do, and, and, and I think it'll eventually come to that. But, you know, it, it, it's just one step at a time, you know. And he, it seems like everything that he has tried to put forth that makes things better, it seems that the Democrats try to fight him on every turn, every step that he does. So it's consequently what happens is that he's getting many, many things done. But I don't think very many people could take all the arrows that he has been taking shot at him through this past three years. Uh, every time you turn around. And my, my concept is that, you know, just think what could have been done for this country in the past three years if the Democrats and the Republicans could have worked together and if the Democrats would have supported President Trump on some of these major, major changes that he had the fight for, but he, he got them through. And there are so many more that, that and much more that he can do. And I think that I think that uh, on the next term after he's elected, I, I, I think we're going to see a lot of lot more and a lot of great things going on for our country. You know, just thanks to his his sheer willpower that he's going to get him get it done, and I, I I'm looking forward to it. Uh, absolutely, you know, um, there's a, a mention of the homelessness, and I don't understand. We have a growing, growing, large number of homelessness, but we find these mostly in areas that are controlled by Democrats. What are we doing as red states that these blue states are not doing that's causing this growing number of homelessness? That's a good question. Well, with California, we know they've taxed the middle class out of the state. There's no middle class left in California. You're either dirt poor or extremely rich. Businesses are fleeing by the thousands. New York State's becoming the same thing. People are fleeing it. I mean, I left in 2001 because I already saw the taxes going sky high. And I said, you know, give us five or ten years. We can't afford to live in New York State anymore. So we came to a state that was more amendable. But this is the problem that I see here, Ernie, is that people are fleeing for economic reasons. But the problem is they don't realize their political beliefs are what are causing those bad economic choices. That's right. Uh, and, and once you start to see that, then you start to look at things from a, a different perspective of trying to get things done and work along with what's going, uh, what's going to change instead of trying to just stand back and watch it or to fight the change. All right. Well, we're waiting for we, our we next had, guest I, to pull I, I, in. Okay. I was going to say I had a, a, uh, a practice. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was saying that I had a practice in Williamsburg, Virginia for many years as a chiropractor, and we would have a joke there saying that people in New York or New Jersey could sell their house and moved to the southern states from Virginia or North, North or South Carolina, Florida, wherever, and they could buy two houses for what they were able to sell their house for in, in the northern states, but they had to get out. Even though they loved it, they had to get out because, as you said, because of the taxes were so so unbearable for most people. Now, it's, you're right, because I had a friend of mine, um, after his wife passed away, he went to sell his house, and it was like, three blocks away from where I lived. And I'm thinking, oh, all right, you can probably get 165, 185. He sold that house for close to half a million. And it wasn't wow. a big, impressive house. And it was not on a large lot or anything like that. I think it was more like a, 
maybe a quarter of an acre, if if that. So it wasn't an impressive property, but for the property in New York, the prices it goes, it's it's unbelievable, you know. Right. And right. It, mainly, you're you're paying for taxes and everything else. I I shudder to think what the taxes on that property was at the time he sold it. I know that the house that we lived in, we were renting at the time. Um, when we first moved in, it was valued at 165. When we moved out seven years later, it doubled easily, easily doubled in value. And the taxes there was something like over $7,500 a year. We moved here. Our taxes were below $1,000. I, I was <laughs> amazed at how little our taxes were. And I see my tax bill climb over a thousand. I'm up in front of my county council, going, "What the heck are you guys doing with our money?" But it, it, it is the politics that control your economy is what you have to look at, and then you have to decide whose policies are more economically reasonable, and vote that way. Vote with your wallet, and I guarantee, if you vote with your wallet, you'll be pulling. A red switch and not a blue switch when you vote at the polls. You know, you're going to realize right. that these tax and spend policies are what is ruining everything. Yes. And and as you said, you know, just asking, you know, like, what are they doing with the increased uh, uh, taxes that are coming in? Uh, I, I heard a radio, uh, one of the radio shows a while back, and the guy was just, uh, he, he was livid because his taxes had doubled in a small area that he was living in, a small uh, town, and could not figure out any reason why he went through everything trying to figure out why they would double. What did they, what were they doing that was more, uh, costing more for whatever the ta- you know, they spent the taxes on and could find nothing. And uh, he, he went to City Hall, went to the Got to the mount to the meetings at the, with the powers to be with the city, and they could not explain any of it to him. And uh, so he just got tired enough of it that he just moved. The problem is that, yeah, we can all maybe at some time in our life move, but not everybody can. And sometimes when we do move out and don't fight it, what happens is the ones that stay there are are in more trouble financially. Uh, so I think that. At some point in everyone's life, we have to draw a line in the sand and take a stand on so many things. You know, you just you're not, you know, you're just not going to be pushed anymore, or you're going to fight back, or you're going to stick up for yourself, or whatever it is. And it could be uh, often many things. You know, we talk about bullies in school. Well, we have bullies in politics constantly. City hall and different different communities have have bullies. And they'll push as far as they can go until somebody takes a stand or a group takes a stand and fights back with them and exposes them. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, now, a, we, it's a kind of a weird situation. Yes. Yeah, it's true. And fortunately, I live in an area where there are people that are awoken, <laughs> to use the last term. And uh, right. they were trying to pass a $65 million uh, tax boondoggle over in Hilton Head, and they said, wait a minute, didn't you just have us vote on another one that was $65 million? You want a second one six months later? 
And they got them to pull it off of the special ballot and cancel that election. But you've got to pay attention. They will slip things past you without you looking. And you have to pay attention. I mean, it's nice you worry about your job and your kids and the grocery shopping and whatever else, getting the kids to the soccer games and baseball games. But you have to also pay attention to who your elected officials are and what they're doing. I mean, we stopped an ordinance here that would have made it criminal, a criminal act if you went before your council member, your council board, and if they thought you were disruptive or the night they think that maybe you were disrespectful in the way you were addressing them or you went over that three-minute slot by a few seconds, they would have had to been thrown in jail for up to 30 days and fined up to $2,500. Would it make wow. it a misdemeanor crime if that council or a member on the council thought that you were disrespectful or disruptive? And that that's such a subjective term. And it was all because yes, one that, individual... Uh-huh. Well, it was just one <laughs> individual that would go to all the meetings and, of course, yeah, he was loud. And I would say mm, I would question... <laughs> His language he would use, but it was nothing illegal about it. It's called free speech. But if you don't pay attention, they'll slip this right past you. Right. And and you're you're true that that word disruptive has many meanings. And the other the other thing about it is that it's the whole council or just one member. That's really. I mean, you could have somebody that just doesn't like the individual. And and uh, say he, that person was disruptive, and you know, and put them in maybe in maybe incarcerate or the fine or or both, which is ridiculous. Well, um, it's, Ernie, it's I'm going to try well, to see. Not, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm going to see if I. I'm going to see if I can try to reach our next guest. He's supposed to be calling in, but I may have to call out to him. So I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few minutes, and in the interim, I'm going to entertain you guys with uh, our friend Gary Piccarella and his song, Save America. So I'll be back in just a few moments. Okay. i 
Don't change America. God bless America and the red, black, and blue. Back here, you're listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Uh, Ernie Panza is my co-host guest today, but we have our other guest up on the line, Mark Mix. He's the president of the National Right to Work Committee. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you today? I'm fine. Not the topic. But uh, glad. All right, your is this your cell phone? Because you sound like you're breaking up. But, yeah, but I've got a good signal here. It is my um. Well, you're, you're breaking up on my end, Mark. Oh my goodness, okay. uh, Mark, can you do me a tremendous favor? If you can, call us directly back. Uh, the number is nine one seven eight eight nine. Three six seven five because I'm getting like every other word. Okay, nine one seven eight eight nine three six seven. Three six seven five. Yes. Okay. I apologize, that folks. Um, we got a little problem here. His phone is just keep on breaking up. We'll cross our fingers. It's like this is live radio. You never know what's going to happen, Ernie. You never know. That's right. This <laughs> uh, this kind of roll with the punches. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm looking at some of the stuff that's going up in the chat room, uh, saying giving a bum a sandwich got anybody. It, oh, never got anybody off the street. I think he meant to say, but uh, it looks like we got our guest back in here again. Mark, how is this today? I, I'm doing better. Hello. Yeah. I, again, you're. you're 
I don't know what it is, if it's your phone or what, but it's breaking up again. Um, geez. I, can you tell well, with your I'll, other number? Uh, yeah, you call me call back. I don't, I'm not in my desk right now in my office, so I'm not, I don't have another number that I'm available at. I apologize about that if it's... Oh, no. Uh, no, no, now you sound a lot better. I don't know if it's where you're sitting or where you're moving. <laughs> but okay, anyway, I... Uh, Well, you are with the National Right to Work uh, Committee, and i got to say, I live in a right-to-work state here in South Carolina, and I used to live in New York, so I know the difference between the two states. We were just discussing the high taxes and the high cost of everything compared to New York to here in the South, and this is something that you have been proving to people. There is a difference. If you have a national right to work, Everything is going to be more economical. People will have more money in their pockets. The The level of living would just be lifted up in an amazing way. Yeah, that's right, Annie. The, the numbers are getting better all the time. In 27 states that have right-to-work laws, not only is it about individual freedom, about the ability to choose whether or not you want to support a labor union, but there's also economic opportunity. And we know that right-to-work states like South Carolina that are leading the world in tire manufacturing and auto manufacturing and airplane manufacturing actually create double the number of private sector jobs than those states that have forced unionism. And, and that's advantageous for everybody. It helps to rise the boats and, and uh, makes a difference in the lives of people all across the country that are in those states that protect their right to join or not to join a labor union. Well, you know, I'm a little confused because uh, when I married my first husband, he was a Marine, and he had mentioned a possibility of my getting a job on the base. And I'm one of these where I used to own my own business. I'm an independent person. I don't, I don't want a, someone to be my boss. I want to be my own boss. I want to be able to, if I do work for someone, being able to say, hey, listen, look, I can do X, Y, Z, and I can improve your business by this idea or that idea. And I have done that many times in, in different jobs. But you can't do that when you've got a union. And I'm wondering, when, what is it now that they allowed unions into government? I thought there was a law that prevented unions in government. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, it's really the growth field for unions these days. The government sector unionism is probably the one area where they've actually had made, quote, unquote, progress. I wouldn't call it progress per se because it's not good for the country. You know, Franklin Roosevelt, when he was the president of the United States and was imposing forced unionism on private sector workers, he was asked by a union official, why don't we just do this in government? And his answer, Franklin Roosevelt's answer, was you can't unionize government. It's not the same thing. In fact, the AFL-CIO back in the 1950s felt the same way. George Meany said you can't organize unions. It doesn't work that way. And the AFL-CIO executive committee said you can't organize governments. It doesn't work that way. But here we are, um, lots of years later, where about 35% of all government workers are forced into union collectives across the country when private sector unionization is down below 6.5% for all the workers in the private sector. So, yeah, I agree with you, Annie. It, I don't believe that the idea of 
public sector bargaining makes any sense when it comes to putting some private organization between taxpayers and their elected officials. It doesn't seem to make any sense, and we're trying to work on that and trying to make sure that taxpayers get their voice back. You know, it's funny because, you know, when I was talking to these people that were working inside the uh, the base, I said, well, what happens if you want to go for a raise or if you think there's a another job that you are qualified for and you want to try for it. It's like, no, 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 you can't. I says, well, what if you saw that your boss needed a little extra something done and you're willing to do No, no, you can't. That's not your job. All you do is your job is to take up this paper clip and move it from point A to point B. Then that's your job. You can't go beyond that. And people don't understand. That's what unions do to you. They box you in into a single job and you're stuck. Yeah, you know, those are the types of uh, work rules and and other kind of regulations that basically uh, are designed to keep everybody exactly at the same level. You only get $1 more in pay if you spend one more year there. Uh, Merit doesn't matter whether you're the worker that produces eight widgets an hour or four widgets an hour. Uh, It doesn't matter. They don't incentivize uh, someone who wants to work extra and work extra hard and be more productive. In fact, Oftentimes in work situations, you know, you, you go to work and you're eager to do a good job and, and after a week or two people watch and they see you and they pat you on the shoulder and say, hey, buddy, slow down. You're making us all look bad here. That doesn't seem to be a formula for success in, 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 uh, in my view. No. And having worked in uh, – I had managed a law firm after I had sold my business. And I went in there and I looked around and they said, right, fine. I'm on a salary, so if I come in on weekends or early or stay late, I'm not going to get any extra money. But if I do this and if I can improve the production of my department, which I did by 40% within the first three months I was there, I said, my boss is going to see value in me, and maybe he'll offer me a raise. And within the first six months, I had my raise. You can't do that if you work for a union. Yeah, those are those are. Um, I mean, everyone shakes their head and says, "Why wouldn't that make sense to everyone else?" It does make sense to most people, Annie. And unfortunately, that those kind of rigid work rules and and requirements. You know, the idea, for example, in the convention industry, there are stories that you know conventions, uh, trade shows that go to Chicago. You know, it takes uh, it takes three different crews to plug in a light bulb, put up a light bulb, and construct an event, uh, construct a uh, a booth. Whereas you go to Orlando or another place where there is not this rigid union control of, of operations and things go things are first of all less expensive and secondly go much more efficiently because you know there's not these structured work rules that say you can't plug in a light or you can't put up a ladder unless you're of this particular unit or this particular union. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but yet union officials have been able to gather tremendous political power, both Washington, D.C. and some, some state capitals, not South Carolina, of course. But that's, you know, and these laws and regulations protect them in, a, in these types of situations where they literally put a damper on people's energy and people's ideas and people's desire to get ahead. You know, at one point in time in our history, yes, unions were needed because the work environment was dangerous and people were dying. People were becoming injured and ill because of the work environment were that bad. So, yes, at one point in time, they were necessary in various industries. Today, we have so many rules and regulations and laws on the book that protect the worker 
why would we still need these unions then? Yeah, you know, I think there's still a place for unions in this country, even today, and there will be tomorrow. But most of the time when you have a union these days, sectors, because the employer is not looking after his employee or taking care of them in a way that's just, you know, run, you know, ordinary these days. And so, but you're right. Uh, it, it, you know, these work rules and these things that kind of embed this, uh, uh, this, making everybody equal, uh, the idea that the, they protect the, the worst worker, they, uh, they harm the best worker, they make everyone midland workers, doesn't seem to make sense in a, in a, in a country and in a time when there are protections in place from, you know, OSHA and other types of agencies that, that look after things that, you know, a hundred years ago weren't being looked after. And at that point there was this need and, and I believe there still is a need for unions. There's just no the idea that you can force someone to pay dues to a private organization for the privilege of work is really the, the at the base level is just kind of a shake your head. I can't believe we still do this in America. Well, you know, you've got a marvelous website, which is the initials to your your uh, organization, National Right to Work Committee, uh, nrtwc.org. And I, I loved where you put up the chart for right-to-work benefits, and I found it amazing. In right-to-work states compared to forced union states, the growth in the number of people employed between 2008-2018 was almost double. It was only 5% in forced union states, and in the right-to-work states, it was 10.8% growth. Um, Private sector payroll uh, increased from 3.1 to 7.6 between forced union and right to work. Uh, Non-farm employment uh, was a 3% jump between the two. I'm just looking at all these numbers. If you're looking at uh, cost of living adjusted per capita of disposable personal income in 2018 alone, between unions and between the right to work, what was in the paycheck was more than $1,000 more. And that's, that's not something to sneeze at. Um, the cost of living adjusted after tax, there was a difference of $4,500, $4,500 difference between the two. I'm looking at some of these things. You know, between the time you pay off your income tax, there's a two-week difference. You think of that two weeks salary more in my pocket if I'm in a right to work state than if you are in a union state. Yeah, you know, some of these numbers and the benefits of being in a right to work state over a union is phenomenal. Yeah, indeed. And and those numbers are just getting better and better all the time. And you know, when you think about the cost of living, you know, union officials want to talk about higher union wages than non union wages, but they living the cost government, things in the state like New York, for example, versus South Carolina, I mean, you're living it. You've lived it, and you're now living it. The difference in the cost of living, it makes a difference. And and frankly, the idea of creating opportunities for workers, whether it be in New York or South Carolina, you think union for that, the actual creation of new jobs. We know that you know, almost 70% of all site selection experts that help companies that want to expand, locate their business won't even look at a state that doesn't have a right to work law. So you're actually 
diminishing opportunities in states like Illinois and New York and California as you maintain this regime of forced unionism, whereas in South Carolina or North Carolina or Virginia or Georgia or Tennessee, you still have unions, but you have unions that are accountable to the workers and their members because those members can vote with their pocketbooks, and that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, now – now I'm I'm finding it amazing that uh, we still have laws on the books that are trying to force people to be members of these unions, and there is something that is called ambush elections, uh, which I understand there is a law that's going to prevent that. Uh, I'm looking at actually the Taft Hartley Act, uh, Section 14B. Tell us about that. Yeah, Section 14B of the Taft-Hartley Act was passed in 1947, and it was a response, Annie, to uh, Roosevelt's overreach in 1935 when, in in the height of the Great Depression, uh, the federal government dramatically expanded its powers over the states and specifically private sector workers. 1935, the federal government said, we're going to take control of, of labor management relations for the private sector. And, of course, the unions grew dramatically when the federal government gave them the power to force workers to join them, literally join the unions um, and pay dues from 1935 to 1946. There was a change in the election in Congress in 1946, and they looked at what they had done back in 1935, and they wanted to amend the National Labor Relations Act at the time, and so they they introduced and considered the Taft-Hartley Act, which was actually vetoed by President Truman, but overridden by the Congress. And the Taft-Hartley Act actually rolled back some of the union power from 1935. But more importantly, it allowed states, if they could by affirmative action, to pass what are known as right-to-work laws. And those laws are very simple. They just say you have the right to join a union, but you can't be forced as a condition of employment to join or pay dues. And so that's what the Taft-Hartley Act did. There's been changes. There was a bill voted last week in the House of Representatives that would eliminate all the right-to-work laws, wipe them out, all 27 of them. It also provided for expedited what you called ambush elections, and that's right. It would say that elections must take place, union elections must take place within 20 days, and that employers can't talk to employees about unionization. And, you know, the employer has to give the union uh, personal information about every worker in the workplace, their cell phone number, their work schedules, their home addresses. This is the type of policy and power that union officials want because, as you mentioned, with the numbers in the right to work states, losing membership. And the reason why they're losing membership is because more workers are able to choose. And that's why this bill, Nancy Pelosi and her caucus decided to pass a bill that would go back to those 1935 rules uh, under Roosevelt and basically empower union officials to corral more workers into unions. And fortunately, it probably won't get through the Senate, and I don't believe it would get through the White House. But, yeah, that's what's in store for us if something changes come this November. Yeah, I was looking at some of the laws that uh, you have been battling and you, you put up on there each and every state and what the laws are and whether or not you support or oppose them. So people can go onto your website and click on their state to see what is going on and help protect their right to work. It's an excellent website. I want to say thank you for that. Now, um, this national right to work uh, law that you're trying to act, the act that you're trying to – is that going to be anti-union? Or is it pro-union? What is it? Well, it's neither, Annie. What that bill says is basically a one-page bill, 
And we're going back into the 1935 law, the Wagner Act, that was under the Roosevelt administration. And we're going in and we're saying that the bias in federal law will be in favor of voluntarism as opposed to compulsion. We're, it, the, the law doesn't – the bill that we have introduced, uh, Joe Wilson from South Carolina is the sponsor of the bill, does not add a single word to federal law. It simply repeals those provisions from those 1935 laws that authorize union officials to have a worker fired for not paying dues or fees. So it, we think it's the best type of legislation. We're actually taking words out of the federal code, and what, by taking those words out, we're actually providing for individual worker choice and individual worker freedom. You can't say Joe Wilson. You have to say Joe. You lie, Wilson. <laughs> He's a friend of mine. <laughs> yeah, he's been a good friend of right to work for a long time. He has. He's been a good friend of right to work, and he understands yes. it. He understands it. Yeah. As well as his son, Alan Wilson, who happens to be our, our state attorney general. They, they are two absolutely wonderful people. And uh, Alan Wilson and I have a, a, a running joke whenever I see him. Uh, so it's always fun to talk to the two of them. You know, um, I, I find it amazing that they still are trying to infringe on our freedoms by imposing unions on there. But there's also union intimidation. And we saw that with SEIU uh, under the Obama administration. We saw that where they were beating people up in the middle of the street and no one gets prosecuted for it. So union intimidation is still very much alive. Yeah, indeed. Unfortunately, it's one of the darker sides of of, uh, of compulsory unionism. You know, believe it or not, Annie, there's actually a Supreme Court decision that was uh, decided in 1973, a decision called Edmonds, um, that says that union officials cannot be prosecuted under federal law for acts of violence used to achieve legitimate union objectives. There's a bill right now in Congress introduced by Francis Rooney from Florida that would that would amend the Hobbs Anti-Extortion Act, the Racketeering Act, would include union officials that are exempt from prosecution under that law. If you and I got together and extorted or racketeered someone's property, we'd be prosecuted, no doubt, no way, you know, for sure. But union officials can get out of it because it's, quote, legitimate union objectives. And so these types of get-out-of-jail-free cards actually encourage union officials to use this type of intimidation, this type of violence, in order to get their way. Because ultimately... They, they, they can't make the case, you know, uh, the, the last vestige is actually intimidation and coercion. Um, you know, they won't give workers a choice. They won't say, hey, we're going to provide great service to you, so you should join us voluntarily. But they're going to try to use legislatures and political power to make sure the Congress and various state legislatures keep them in power of law as opposed to providing services. It just, the model just doesn't – ultimately, it's going to fall apart. Uh, if we can rely on compulsion. Yeah, well, you, you, I'm sure, are very aware of the stories of when Toyota and Boeing came here to South Carolina and the influence the unions have. And the unions are still trying to force members in Boeing and Toyota into these unions. And thankfully, we've got strong people here, and they're still fighting them. But we have a, a question in the chat room uh, wants to know that if you do not join the union, do you still lose pay equal to the union dues, or is that extra? That money remains in your paycheck, or do you lose it? No, you don't lose it. That money that money goes to you. You just don't have to pay the fees. You know, the union officials have a very unique privilege. The, the primary power they have is the ability to be the exclusive monopoly bargaining agent for every employee, whether 
employee voted for them, whether they ever wanted it. So the union is the sole voice in the workplace. They're the only ones that can talk to them. Can uh, activate the grievance process and finish the grievance process for workers. They're the only ones that can negotiate a contract. In fact, if you're not a member of the union, and let's say you make eight widgets a day and, and your buddy next to you makes four, the employer, it's against the law for the employer to pay you more if you're under a union contract. So you get to keep the money, but unfortunately, you have you still have to accept the union as your voice in the workplace, even though you don't want them and didn't ask for them. Well, you know, then you, the union will turn around and say, oh, you're a free rider. And yeah. they make it sound like such a derogatory term. But, hey, I don't agree with union policies. I don't want to belong to a union. You really don't do that much for me. And you're going to call me a free rider. Yeah, actually, workers workers in those situations are actually captive passengers. They can't get out from under the union monopoly. It is perfectly legal under federal law for unions to represent only those workers that want to be represented by them. But A, because they demand this power and they, they demand discipline in the workplace, they actually ask for the privilege to be the exclusive bargaining agent, the sole voice in the workplace. It is Absolutely clear. Union officials have agreed with this. In fact, the old chairman of the National Labor Relations Board, Bill Gould, who was appointed by Bill Clinton, said publicly, he said, of course workers can bargain for their own members and leave those non-members out. But they won't do that because that's the way they claim this so-called free rider argument when, in fact, these workers are forced into these union collectives and can't speak for themselves and can't do anything that would make their condition better as opposed to those that are in the union because the union is the sole voice in the workplace. We would love, and we tried back in 1993, we asked got Dick Army to introduce a bill that would say very clearly that the unions would only represent those workers that voted for them. And of course, the people that opposed that bill, guess who? The AFL-CIO. Because this power to speak for everyone, this monopoly bargaining power that forces everyone into the collective, whether they wanted the union or not, is really the, the, the secret to their power in the workplace. Well, you know, I, I've got to admit, you know, um, besides owning my own business and managing businesses, um, I retired out of NYPD, and we have, quote, a police benevolent association, which is our union. And I got to say, in that instance, that's a good union because you're representing 35,000 police officers. If an individual police officer tried to represent himself, you get squashed under the bus faster than you can say, ouch. Um, so in some instances, I do see the necessity for it. So I'm not knocking all unions. I do understand that there are certain circumstances where they're necessary. But again, it should be voluntary. And um, what I would hear when we had an officer come in saying, well, I don't want to be a member of the union. And that's fine. Fine and Jim Nandy, Dandy. But know this one thing. If you get yourself in trouble and you have to go before uh, the board or you have to go into the trial room or something like that, you're not going to have a representative standing there at your side to make sure your rights are protected. And that's that's how they, they, they kind of like coerced everyone to become members. Yeah. Well, as you say, joining together voluntarily for to amplify your voice and to protect yourselves is not a bad thing. The question is, do you force unions on people? I mean, if, if you were a police officer, obviously, and you thought there was an opportunity to protect yourself and, 
and, uh, you know, get a benefit from this organization, then absolutely you should join. There's no question about that. But nothing in a right-to-work law would stop that. That's the, that's the real secret and the real simplicity of the right-to-work. It's you get to choose, and, and we think that's the right policy for America. Well, you know, there is a National Right-to-Work Act out there uh, in the 116th Congress, and it's been sponsored by Byrne, Comert, Roy, Rutherford, Klein, Kelly, and Green. And if people want to know where their elected official stands, again, they can go to your website, which is nrtwc.org, and see where the elected official stands. Now, one of the other things that uh, is slow moving and being reformed is the NLRB. Where do we stand on that? Yeah, the National Labor Relations Board is a five-member board that was created way back in 1935. Actually, a three-member board back then. It's, they've added two seats to it since uh, uh, it's got lots more work. The NLRB is the adjudicator of private sector labor law in this country. They're a federal agency, an independent agency. They, they are nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. They serve five-year terms. Right now, there are three members of the board. There are two vacancies um, as we speak. Like any adjudicatory body, they they don't operate very quickly. There's a uh, a process, a legal process that uh, uh, looks at these charges, both against employers and against unions, and it just takes time. And most of the time, workers don't have the uh, the ability to work through that process. We we actually have a national right to work legal foundation. We provide free legal aid to employees. About a third of our cases are National Labor Relations Act cases where we're representing employees for free, helping them to vindicate their rights. Uh, the board is, uh, as I mentioned, it's it's like a like court, and they handle, uh, they hear disputes and make decisions labor policy. Lots of reform that needs to be done there, and unfortunately, every time there's a change in presidential politics, the board kind of changes its flavor, and it's like a tennis match, Annie. Things go back and forth, and and there's still lots of work to do there. And this board that's serving now has done some very useful things. And most of the stuff they've done is empowered individual employees, whereas the Obama board previously made unions a lot stronger. Uh, the board now is working on issues that deal with employee rights as opposed to union rights, and that's a big deal. So um, there's lots of work. Hey, Annie, I've got to jump off the phone here. I've got uh, another appointment that I've got to make. I, I apologize for uh, losing the last 15 minutes a, a confusion on our end, but I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about this, and I'd love to do it again if, you, it's, if you'd like that, but I do need to get off the phone here and, and head to another oh, opportunity no, I, I or another appointment. I've got my next guest up on the line also, so I was going to say thank you, and, uh, and thank you for being with us and the hard work you do, Mark. Thank you, Annie. I appreciate it. All right. Mark Mix, check it out. The National Right to Work committee and bring on our next guest. I want to welcome onto the show first time Sandra Lee. How are you doing, Sandra? Annie, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. I got you. And I oh, apologize for being a little late, I enjoyed but the, listening to your uh, your previous guest. That was fascinating. Very enlightening yeah. about well, unions. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we cover all different types of subjects here, and you've got a you do. new book you really out. do. <laughs> now you want well, to get a new talk book out. about um, a socialism and my book, dear Donald, letters from a loving deplorable. And I I know we're all a little bit concerned about what's happening in politics today, and 
Bernie Sanders and this leaning in the Democratic Party in the direction of socialism and even communism. It's kind of scary. But thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, it is my pleasure. And I had a lot of fun reading the book. I mean, I laughed. I cried. Um, A lot of it I could relate to uh, because you're the child of an immigrant and I'm the grandchild of immigrants uh, who came here legally. Uh, And I I love the story. Where was your grandfather from? uh, One grandfather was from Germany. and he served in the American Army in World War One. Uh, the other one, it was from Italy. He also served in the Army in World War One. Uh, and his wife, my grandmother, also from Italy. So I have one from Germany, two from Italy. And my other grandmother was born in Brooklyn, but I understand she had ties to Canada and England. So you know, we're so you're all over children the place. Of immigrants. Yeah, children of immigrants. My <laughs> yeah. father was from Lebanon, and he came here when he was eighteen. And- Oh, my gosh, he loved America. He just loved the United States of America. I grew up wearing red, white, and blue, girl. Let me tell you, he just was enamored of the freedom and the excitement and the the ability to self-express. And he didn't speak English. He didn't read English. And son of a gun, he drove cabs, and, and then he worked in a body shop, and then he worked his way into owning the body shop. He worked 18 hours a day, and then he extended it to a used car lot, and then he extended it to a new car dealership, and then a bigger dealership, and then a second dealership, he became a rich man. And he always said, only in America, only in America. And I love that American dream. And so my book, Dear Donald, Letters from a Loving Deplorable, really praises that dream. And I, and I write letters to Donald all the time because, you know, he's a part of that dream too, his father clawed his way up, became very wealthy, and Donald followed suit. And Lord knows he made a lot of mistakes emotionally and spiritually and in business. But gosh, that guy knows how to get up again and keep fighting. And I admire that about him. He forgives himself, he claims redemption, and he keeps moving on. He keeps moving on. It's wonderful. Your book is is actually letters, and each one addresses a different subject, things that are going on in your life personally, things that are going on on the political stage, things that are going on with Donald Trump and his family. And these are really intimate personal letters where you do reveal a lot about not just yourself, but your thoughts about where our country is going. And I find them so moving and so touching. And it's a very easy to read book. It is. You know, you can read it in two days. It's not my son, who does not like to read books. He's a doer. You know, he's one of those doer people. He said, Mom, I just flew through that book and, and, and loved it. He just absolutely loved it. So, of course, don't we want our children to praise us? So I, I do find that comment frequently, that it's easy to get through and that it's moving. Thank heavens. I'm glad I'm inspiring people. That's a good thing. Well, when now you, you mentioned where you live, I'm sorry, no, I interrupted you. When I, I mentioned when I, where I lived. Oh, what uh, were you going to say? Port Washington, in Port Washington. You know, I used to go through there a lot, and at the port right there in Washington, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's still there, but there was a hotel right there on the pier, 
And my husband and I spent a marvelous New Year's there. It was just beautiful. The fireplace going nonstop on a nice wintry oh, day. Washington so is I, such a charming, charming town. But you know, the whole Long Island scene and the New York scene is it's becoming a little difficult. There's a strong Democratic presence there. A lot of um, a lot of political leanings that make it difficult for New Yorkers these days. Trump left New York, you know, it was just, it's getting difficult. And then a lot of these cities around the country with their sanctuary city uh, ideas and their very liberal ideas, it's, it's hard. I moved back to Ohio, Annie. I grew up in Ohio. And I was a New York girl. I mean, you know, right up there with the rest of them. And I certainly voted Democrat lots of times. But when I came to Ohio, gosh, it was a breath of fresh air when I came after 9-11 and settled back here where I grew up. What a different environment it is when you get out of the East and out of California, you know, you get into the middle more of America. It's a very different feeling. It's more about churches and country clubs. It tends to be a little more conservative. It's a lot about family. And I just was breathing such fresh air. There was a lot of wide open spaces not just geographic space, but spiritual space. And I grew spiritually when I came back home. And I'm so grateful for that. I really am. And you know what? I think Donald has grown spiritually. I really do. I think the man has been touched by God. I've seen enormous growth in him, even in the last three years. But the important thing is he's not a socialist. He's a capitalist. And I love what he's done in this country. I love what he's achieved. And that's what I talk about in the first book. I'm writing a second book, Dear Donald, Four More Years. You think I'm a little um, presumptuous? I'm definitely optimistic (laughs) about the fact that he's going to have at least four more years. I wouldn't be surprised if he changed the whole game and had another two terms. The man is a genius at politics. Who would have thought he would have been this good? I thought it would be good, but I'm quite frankly amazed at how effective he's been. He yeah, really well, I, has admit, I left. Well, I left New York uh, in 2001. Matter of fact, it was a couple of days before Hillary Clinton was sworn in as the state senator. Matter of fact, I voted for Rick Glasio. And at one point in time, Long Island, Nassau County, and Suffolk County were heavy Republicans. And I saw the writing on the wall, and I said, I'm not going to live in a state with Hillary Clinton as a senator. <laughs> we got out of there. But um, it, 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 the, the politics that you see going on, uh, wherever there is a Democratic stronghold, you see the economics go down. Your taxes go sky high, quality of living goes down, loss of jobs go go out the window. Uh, but where we do see Republicans regaining a stronghold, we see a reverberation of the economy. And this is the growth and you know, that is I'm so happy to hear you say that. You're validating my experience because when I came back to Ohio, my house, the house that I built, was literally five times the size of the house that I lived in in Port Washington. Port Washington's a lovely little town, but the cost of living in New York 
and I'm thinking I'm paying all these taxes, not only real estate taxes, but taxes on my income. They tax you to death. And the communities, I'm going, well, where is all this money going? My community here in Ohio, just today I was driving around and I went, thank you, Lord, for bringing me back to Ohio. The community center, the firehouse, the libraries, every single thing in the community is breathtaking, is spacious, is serving the community. And I, I couldn't even find an, ex- an exercise place when I was in Port Washington without having to spend a lot of money. And I loved Port Washington. It was charming and right on the water and had some wonderful qualities. But I'm telling you, there's a different kind of government when you get away from the East and the West and you get into a more Republican setting. It just seems like it's more honest to me. It oh, feels there's bad. a lot to be said it, for that, and and you find also a lot you bad. get to know, you you get to know the people that are in the government, your council member, and I can pick up the phone or I can text my council member and he'll answer me within a matter of a few minutes. You don't get that when you're in a large city or in an area like Port Washington or well actually Northport. I knew the mayor. The mayor was a friend of mine in Northport. Um, he owned the local funeral home. So, you know, he was always able to get a reach out. Uh, but, you know, you find it's moving away from that, especially if you're in a heavy Democratic, because they, they want government to control you, where we as conservatives want to control our government. It's, the, it's a complete flip-flop. And, you know, this, this trend toward Bernie Sanders is a little bit terrifying. I'm having trouble with the Democrats when they're not moving in a socialistic direction. Now that they're moving in that direction, I'm terrified. I'm thinking, please, God, don't put these people in power. Because I, don't, I think their, their platform is insane. It's just absolutely doesn't make any sense. And, you know, they're talking to people who are very, I think, naive. Because, of course, it's intoxicating to think that they'll pay for your student loans. They want free student loans. They want all free Medicare. They want free, 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 free. These things are unrealistic. And I don't even know that they're healthy. They can't be done. Then, then this is what socialism does. It takes all of your money. It takes control of all of your money. And then it becomes more and more and more corrupt. Do we want Venezuela? No, we don't. And Bernie Sanders says, oh, I'm not a communist. I, you know, I like, I, so I'm, I'm a socialist. Well, where does socialism work? Where does it work? You know, in Britain, people get free medical, except the people who have money go to private clinics because the free stuff does not have the quality that they're getting in private clinics. I have a condo in Florida with people coming down from Canada all the time. You know why? They're getting medical help in the United States. Because in Canada, they've got to wait and wait and wait and wait, and they don't get the same quality medical care. So this free medical care, national socialistic medical care, is a disaster. It's a disaster. And I just keep telling people, they don't know what they're talking about. And free college, you know, the problem with college, it's gotten ridiculously expensive, and it's teaching kids stuff they don't need to know. It's really become a, a, a young country club. 
Parents are spending fortunes on it. Kids are building up loans that they'll never pay for years and years and years, keeping them from owning homes. And what are they doing in these colleges? What are they learning in these colleges that are completely run by liberals? They make you bad and wrong if you're a Republican. They make you bad and wrong if you're a Christian. I remember I had a rosary on my dresser at Skidmore, lovely Eastern Girls College, and it was a girls' college when I went there. And somebody stole my rosary. Like it was, it, they didn't respect people of various religions. They, they were snobbish about religion. They thought they were above religion. So that was something about college I didn't like. But they weren't above drinking, drugging, drugging partying. You know, what was that college experience? When I look back on it, a lot of it was about partying. A lot of it was. And you take your young people, your beautiful young people, and you send them off into the wilderness, into these schools all over the country. You pay a fortune for them, and sometimes they never come home again. So I'm not so sure I like this college system. I'd like to see the whole college system revamped. It's gotten out of control, and it's gotten, um, it's gotten not honest. It's dishonest. The professors well, are overpaid. Well, it used to be, you know, you understood not everyone was college material. So there was vocational training uh, in high school, junior high and high school, to prepare you to go out there and be uh, able to work and find something and that you are comfortable working days. in. Plumbers and electricians so, you know, and people who can do something real because those things are really needed. Those are really needed, and we've pedestalized learning about things that young people don't really need to learn about. They need to learn to provide for themselves and to have a, a working education. And, of course, I'm not saying that learning about literature and the arts and the sciences and all that is wonderful. You can do that all your life. You're a young person. You need to learn how to take care of yourself. School needs to be far more practical than it is. And closer to home. God, God forbid you need to change out a light socket, you know, or, or an electrical outlet. A lot of these kids today don't know how to do that, much less run a cash register. You know, heaven forbid, count change. Um, I, I tell the story, and this is a true story, in the checkout line in the grocery store. The girl's scanning everything in. She's barely even looking at what she's doing. And the divider you put between your groceries and the person next, she picked it up and she was trying to scan it. And then she calls for a price check on the divider. Hello. You know, the common sense things, the practical working knowledge you need to go out there in the real world to think independently, to recognize the situation, be able to deal with it. Critical thinking is not being taught. And people don't know how to exercise the brain enough to to effectively use critical thinking in situations, and I this totally is what we're losing a whole you. generation of losing generations of kids because we're not teaching them what will help them live as an adult. And that's why I'm writing all these letters to Donald Trump and letters and letters and letters and letters. And I thought, oh, Sandra, stop writing all these letters. I can't stop. I'm like this letter machine. And then one day I said to myself, don't make yourself wrong for writing all these letters. Letters are a powerful tool in God's hands. In the Bible, Paul 
spoke to us through letters. And John spoke to us through letters. And Luke spoke to us through letters. You know, I think Trump has been chosen by God for a time such as this. And I'm writing him letters about everything I'm feeling day after day, everything that's going on in politics. And I am that educated suburban woman. You know, just because I'm educated, I don't think I'm God's gift to the world. I don't think I know it all. And I'm not criticizing him for being as down to earth as he is, for speaking honestly. Sometimes classic doesn't bother me one bit. It doesn't bother me one bit, Annie. When he speaks, I feel like he's being authentic. He's being real. He's not being politically correct. I know he's telling me exactly what he feels, exactly what's on his mind. And so to me, it's thrilling because I can relate to it. It's not just political speech, which becomes to me like Greek. I don't even know what they're talking about. It's boring. I can't stay with it. I can't continue to listen to it. When Donald Trump is on, I'm absolutely glued to whatever he's saying, as are 10, 20, 30,000 people at a time at his rallies. Who else gets that kind of attention? Now, and, and the letters in your book, as you said, are very, very intimate. It's you speaking from your heart. And I got really uh, moved by one of the letters you wrote. In it, you were addressing the fact that your sister had passed away. And you asked her, you know, what, is, what does heaven look like? And something phenomenal happened uh, with her three children and you. I want you to tell that because it, I, it really moved me because it brought back memories of after my father passed away. Something very similar happened. You know, it helped me believe in God, that experience, because when Bonnie was dying, she had cancer, I would take her to get her nails done. And I was driving her home one day, and I said, Bonnie, how am I going to know that you're in heaven? How am I going to know? I mean, I'm going to just have this desperate feeling of loss when you're gone, and I want to know that you're in heaven. She said, don't worry, I'll, I'll paint you a picture. I said, how are you going to paint me a picture when you're in heaven? I, you know, I just said, I, I was desperate. So I take her home, and I, and I nurse her for a number of weeks. And, and when she passed, of course, we were all so sad. My big sister, my beautiful big sister, just broke my heart. And she had three wonderful children who I love. One of them is my goddaughter. And within a few weeks of her passing, of course, they, went, they gave her a beautiful funeral, went through all of her things. Her eldest son comes to my door with a photograph that he's taken of the beautiful view from my condo balcony. I always let the the nieces and nephews and, and children go down there to vacation. And it's just a gorgeous view. It's a condo that my father bought and kept in the family. And then when I inherited a portion of it, I bought the other two-thirds of it. And I always let the kids use it. So he brings me this gorgeous photograph of the view from the condo. This is Bonnie's eldest son. Then her daughter, who's my goddaughter, a few days later comes to my door, and she has a painting that belonged to my mother and dad, and they gave it to Bonnie when they passed, and it's a picture of a young woman with a little baby, beautiful painting. And um, Tammy says to me, I thought you'd like to have this picture. I said, well, thank you, sweetheart. I always love that that picture, and I hang it on the wall, and my significant other, Dale, looks at it, and he said, gee, that looks like you with your son, that picture. 
He said, it looks like Vani holding your, your son, your sister Vani holding your son. At first I thought it looked like you, but now when I look at it, it looks like your sister Vani. So then a few days later, her youngest child comes to my door, and she has a picture, a photograph of my sister Vani with my son, Dennis, my only son, when Dennis was an infant. Beautiful. When Vani was young, she was so beautiful. And she was holding my son in her arms. And this beautiful photograph, beautifully framed. So, you know, I have all three of those pictures hanging in my dining room. And one day I looked up at them and I said, oh, my God, you're in heaven. <laughs> you told me to send me a picture. And you sent me three pictures. Your children, one at a time, one did not know that the other one was giving me a picture. Each one did not know the other one was giving me a picture. And I'm telling you that story, and I, I swear I cry every time I tell the story. Because what it did for me was it, it reminded me that there is a heaven. There is a God. This is a scary time that we're going through in our country. I am so sad to see the political differences that are happening. I don't mind that people disagree with one another, but when they become violent, when they become hateful, when they become treacherous, you know, I mean, Donald definitely was a bit mouthy. I get it. But what, what's going on on the Democratic side, the hate, the hostility, the dangerous hate, the violence, the encouragement of violence, I, I just am terrified by it. I'm saddened by it, and I'm praying about it, and I'm writing about it in my books. And I'm encouraging that woman, that suburban, educated woman, to cherish her education, but to not forget her Holy Spirit. You know, get in touch with what's really important. Don't worry that your children are going to be negatively impacted by this man. Instead, tell your sons and daughters that this man is a man who found redemption, who is working toward doing good things for humanity. And look what he's doing with, with Israel. He's a great friend of Israel. And look what he's doing for the unborn child. This is a man who's been touched by grace. And we have to know that and trust that and not be afraid to vote for him. I'm begging the educated suburban woman to move in the direction of Donald Trump. And guess what? She's doing it. She's doing it along with the blacks and the Hispanics and the young people. Now there are lots of young people gathering together. They're they're bright and they see the truth. The Asians. Oh, Sandra, your book is a must-read, I'm telling you. Uh, parents should probably pick this book up and give it to their kids to read. Uh, it's called Dear Donald, Letters from a Loving Deplorable. Sandra, I want to thank you for joining us. I wish we had more time, but we'll have you back on the show. You're such a pleasure to speak with. Oh, it was a delight to be with you today, Annie, and happy Valentine's Day to you. And I wish all of your listeners oh, love and laughter. Absolutely. Happy Valentine's Day. God bless, Sandra. Have a wonderful weekend. All right. Thank you, dear. Sandra Lee, check out, check out her book, Dear Donald, 
Letters from a Loving Deplorable. And we want to welcome back onto the show Wilford Riley. He has also a new book out called Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. Welcome back, Wilford. How are you today? Pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I, I don't know even where to start. I've got your book in front of me, and I've got about a hundred different little post-it notes, you know, all over it. I'm putting it up in front of the camera so people can see the post-it notes all over the book. So I'm trying to figure out where to start. Oh my goodness, your other book, Hate Crime Hoax, it was a fantastic read, and this one it just is an eye opener. Good to good to hear. You know, you talk about a whole mess of different uh, subjects, and I'm looking at my first post-it note, so I'm just going to start from the beginning and go through it. I don't even know how to do this. Um, Has oppression uh, turned on the very people who fought it? Is oppression dead, or has it been reversed against us? Well, I don't think oppression exists in the United States. I mean, that's an interesting question, actually. Is there enough anti-white rhetoric now that whites are a bit more oppressed than blacks? It's an interesting cocktail party conversation. But I don't think anyone in the USA is oppressed. So the opening line of the book is oppression is dead, race war is dead, but their ghost remains troublesome. And I think that that's a very good way of describing the situation. What you have in the United States right now is a situation where given equal qualifications, white, black, and Asian males at least, there's still a little residual bias against Hispanics, have had pretty much the same income since 1969, according to Tom Sowell, a great social scientist. That's, that's the actual situation. But because of the nation's history of ethnic conflict, literal wars with the Indians, slavery, targeting primarily African-Americans, so on, there's a tendency to view problems that exist as the result of racism. What this book does is really look at this entire conversation, this entire narrative would be a better way to put it, that exists in America that I call the CON, the Continuing Oppression Narrative, but which is essentially the idea that the USA is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad place, and that you're not supposed to challenge people who say this because they're woke and brilliant and funny. And the whole book is based on challenging them, except for the final chapter, which challenges some extreme ideas on the right, because, you know, we have to clean house every so often. But chapter one, it's literally just called uh, There Is No War. The police aren't murdering black people. Chapter two is There Is No Race War at All. So chapter one, I actually go through the Black Lives Matter movement, which is full of terrible ideas that got a lot of young brothers killed, and break down some of the things they say. Um, For example, the argument that tens of thousands of people are being killed by police and half of them are black. Not really. Less than a thousand people are shot by the police in a typical year. Only about 25% of them are black. That's a tiny overrepresentation in the first place, and it vanishes if you adjust for our slightly but definitely higher crime rate. So that's the kind of thing I talk about in the book, quote, unquote, all the things you're not supposed to hear about. Yeah, because I I find it amazing that this one guy, uh, the Black Lives Matter activist, Cherno Biko, Biko, whatever his name is, uh, he said that there's his real name is like Tom Smith. Like cops, <laughs> he said a, a black guy is killed by the cops every 28 hours. You know, um, I spent 10 years in NYPD, and I don't recall any of us ever killing a black guy. And we worked in a black and Hispanic neighborhood. In the 10 years there, I don't recall any cop killing someone in those 10 years. And that's 235 officers. 
Yeah, I mean, so for, there are a couple different things. And, I mean, I'm not myself inexperienced with violence. I grew up in the hood. I'm a professional weapons instructor for the NRA and for the state of Kentucky. Obviously, great respect to those you guys that did even, even more than that on a police force. But, yeah, there's not epidemic violence in the United States uh, outside of ghetto or poor white violence, young men killing each other. That's an issue. But, I mean, so first of all, that 28 uh, brothers every 28 hours estimate is about twice the real rate. If you break down a thousand, then you take 20% of that. That by definition isn't almost 400 a year. It's about 200. That's just math. But even there, uh, Biko is playing, or Smith is playing games with the figures because he's presenting every one of the shootings of black people that happened as murders. The reality is that most people that are killed by police are killed by the police because they're committing a serious crime or they're fighting the police. Um, the number of unarmed, non-resisting black men that are killed in a typical year is about five. Uh, in 2015, which is a very representative year that I look at in depth in that book that you looked through, Taboo, uh, the total number of black men or unarmed black men, period, whether resisting or not, criminals or not, that were killed by white police officers was 17. So you can keep breaking these figures down. It's like a Russian nesting doll with racism inside that you never really get to. If the claim is that the police are murdering thousands of black people, well, no, they're not the highest estimate ever, you know, 365 or whatever. And it turns out the actual figure is half of that. And then it turns out only five of those guys are unarmed. There just is no epidemic. And, oh, and then it turned out of those five guys, most are shot by black cops. So there really is no there there when you get down through every level of the doll. Now, I found some of the numbers in the book absolutely interesting. Um, you wrote in the book, you said, take my group. In the U.S. as a whole, blacks make up 13 to 14 percent of the population, but more than 65 percent of the NBA basketball players, only 1.4 percent of doctors, 38 percent of barbers, 16 percent of professional restaurant cooks and chefs. So the statistics are kind of like a little weird here. Well, I think what I'm getting at, there's a common claim when you hear this phrase institutional racism or structural racism, unless you're on a college campus and you're talking to an actual genius who might have something to say. But when you hear this from, say, MSNBC News, what that almost invariably means is we've identified a gap between two groups and we're going to attribute it to racism. So, for example, um, the SAT scores in the USA, blacks have been doing quite well recently. We're up to about 950, but whites beat us. Whites are at about 1080. Well done. Uh, and the almost universal description from someone on the left when they hear that is, well, the SAT is a well-known racist exam. It's biased. It's discriminatory. But the only evidence for that is that blacks do a little bit worse. If you take the scores for Asians or for third-generation Hispanic immigrants, there's no evidence of racial prejudice at all. Those groups beat whites, although whites do quite well. But, I mean, the reason I included those figures is that it's just meaningless to say, well, if only 7% of Oscars go to black people, that's because of racism. So I decided just to look at the representation of blacks across high-performing fields. I mean, you notice I included doctor, athlete, chef, owns a barbershop. We're not talking about bums or shoeshine guys here. Not that there's anything wrong with any honest work. But of those fields, which are all pretty reputable, chef, you saw a dramatically different representation of black people. Black people make up 16% of chefs, 2% of doctors. So you can't say that the culinary schools discriminate against whites and the medical schools discriminate against blacks. That's not true at all. 
It's just that people have different interests, different talents, people live in different regions. So you can't just criticize some sector because it's not diverse. You have to identify actual racism. And then I think today, left and right, we would mostly fight it together. But there's very, very little of it. Well, yeah, I have a question for you here now. Because in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, going into World War II, uh, the black population had a very prosperous middle class. There were doctors. There were uh, uh, professors. There were attorneys out there. There was a, a good, healthy middle class. Now in comes LBJ and the new great experiment bringing around welfare and food stamps and Section 8 housing and free Obama phones where all of a sudden that healthy middle class has disappeared. You actually had back then, you had actual millionaires. And well, one of the most... I do want to say that I, I don't think it's empirically sorry. I don't think it's empirically true that the black middle class has disappeared. I mean, this actually is one of the things that's kind of interesting. I'll see if I can pull this up. But I think that there's there's an incredible amount of presentation in left wing media of black people as poor, but that's not necessarily accurate. Let's see. I have these figures on my desk. Actually, I looked up the latest black incomes. Okay, yeah, black demographics, census bearer. So of black people in 2016, um, 12% are middle and upper middle, 12% are upper middle class and rich. So that's 100,000 or more. Uh, 30, no, 12% of black people are upper middle class defined as more than 100,000, census bearer, uh, blackdemographics.com. 40% are middle class, defined as 35K to 100K. Um, and 25% are working class, defined as 18K to 35K. So only 21% of black people are poor. Um, I think that one of the reasons you see a big focus on black poverty, actually, is the decision by the political left to ignore poor whites. So there's an extreme focus in the USA on the left, on this idea that the country is incredibly discriminatory, prejudiced, biased. So every time black people are poor, the argument goes, that's the result of racism. Um, every time a black man gets shot by a cop, that's not because he shoved a cop in full uniform. That's a result of racism. And one of the side effects of this has been the minimization of black success. I mean, there are actually not only black millionaires today, there are plenty of black billionaires. Uh, Michael Jordan, the uh, basketball great who also turned out to be a hell of a businessman, is worth a billion dollars. Rob Johnson, who owns uh, Johnson Publications, just sort of inoffensive rich guy in a suit, is a black billionaire. Jay-Z, the rapper, who's not you know, maybe the most ethical guy in the world, but who owns Rockefeller, is a billionaire. So the question is, why doesn't anyone talk about these black success stories? And the answer is because they distract from programs like Obama phones. Well, I was going to follow through because I was saying we see a segment in society, not necessarily black, but we're seeing also in white and now Hispanic growing, where we're so dependent upon government, where you are being rewarded for having no father in the household, being a single mother, so that way you okay. get more welfare. We reward bad behavior, which in the end causes the child to grow up be more prone to drug addiction, alcohol abuse, oh, domestic fuck. abuse, where we don't see them being what we used to see, 
where they would be independent and thriving on their own, we're saying, no, you now sit at the government's table and eat out of their trough. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. I mean, I'm, I'm not a far left guy at all. So, I mean, I, I totally agree with you on that. My point was just, I think that when we minimize white poverty, that doesn't, that doesn't help my poor buddies in Chicago who are Italian-American, Irish-American, Cuban-American. I mean, there are more poor white people than poor black people, and not by much. But, I mean, when you're, if, if, when you're going into this, we definitely – the welfare created an underclass. That's true. I would distinguish an underclass from a traditional lower class by two things, high rate of crime and nobody works. So, I mean, for most of history, everybody's dad's favorite slogan was pretty much just accurate. If you don't work, you don't eat. I mean, there were jobs you could have that weren't considered especially prestigious, like digging ditches. But up through, I believe you might correct this, but in 1964, there was no cash welfare. So unless you worked or were a very skillful thief, you didn't have any food. And now, so when I say 21% of black people are poor, that's not dramatically larger than the percentage of white people that are poor. But the question is, what percentage of those people are poor and working? And the answer is very few, at least in the black community. So we're, we're not talking about Oliver Twist here, like you spend all day peeling apples or whatever, and at the end you get a bowl of oatmeal. We're talking about people that are paid $1 below the poverty line to do absolutely nothing. So, yeah, the, the growth of the welfare underclass is a real issue, and I'd be, I'd be interested in what your solutions for that are because we've been trying to get rid of the welfare underclass for generations. Clinton and Gingrich, the one thing they really did together was a welfare reform bill. But there's so damn many welfare programs that it's hard to get that elephant out of the room. I mean, we still have food stamps. We have Section 8. Uh, we have, what is it, TAMP, unemployment's extended to a year. Like for a very substantial period of your life, you cannot work and get paid as much as an average job. That is that is an issue. Now that's a huge issue, which I, I see President Trump really working on, where he's taking 10 million people off of welfare, 7 million people off of food stamps. He's making inroads, and he's lifting up people out of poverty. So we may see that underclass start to melt away. Not completely. We'll never be fully rid of poor. There will always be poor in our lives. But we can do the best we can to help people make their lives better on their own without our help. Yeah. I mean, I, well, first of all, I think Republicans are generally better on welfare issues. There are things I think that Democrats are better on, like sane environmental policy when you get non-crazy Democrats in there. Republicans tend to be better on war and road building, also better on welfare. Although better on welfare really just means you give less money away. I mean, there's a pretty simple solution to that. I don't think you can ever get rid of the poor. I mean, I think you did actually a Christ there, uh, the poor, they will be always with us. I do think you can get rid of an underclass because the unique thing about underclasses is they're made up of healthy people that don't work. So it's entirely possible to set up a system where if you're healthy and you don't work, you don't get any money that drives people back into the workforce. I mean, the original welfare programs, if you go back to uh, Roosevelt and Eisenhower, again, great Republican, great Democrat agreeing on this, uh, were things like the Civilian Conservation Corps, where if you're an adult man, they didn't have a job. They would pay you the prevailing wage rate, but you would have to literally go dig a lake. You would have to participate in these massive public works programs that gave us a lot of the buildings and highways and so on that we have today. So I'd be fine with that as a welfare program. The question is, should you give people, say, $14 an hour equivalent to sit around 
and not do anything. I mean, the Obama phone program, I think, was a target of so many people because if you claimed you were poor, and I don't think there was a very good verification of this, they would give you a new Android phone. And I, I do think that is kind of emblematic of what we don't want to do. Do we want to give people iPhones for not working? Probably not. You know, it's funny because uh, people look at their telephone bill, their cable TV bill, their Internet bill. There is a fee on there to pay for those Obama phones. So you, you get hit. Any of your telecommunications, any of your smart devices, you're paying for those phones, folks. And that's, that's something we're going to have to see if we get repealed and taken off of our, our bills. But um, your book covers so many, so many different areas. I, there's no way in this small amount of time that we have to cover half of it. It's an excellent book, Taboo, 10 Facts You, can, you. you Can't Talk About. And one of the things you, you point out is that um, blacks are not the only victims in our society. Well, I, again, I don't think anybody really is a victim in our society unless you're talking about disabled war veterans or something. Even then, I would say they are survivors. But, I mean, I do think that one of the things – one of the reasons I emphasize that we tend to ignore white poverty is that the focus on this sort of black-white fighting, which has greatly decreased in recent years – it takes away from a lot of the real issues in society. So one of the things I say, actually, is that if you want to help Americans, there are issues that are distributed pretty evenly across black and white that have solutions, like the opiate epidemic. Uh, interestingly, the uh, proposed border wall would actually help with the opiate epidemic because the majority of heroin in the country – comes directly from Mexico. Now, there are also quack doctors that keep writing scripts for pills and so on, but I mean, you can solve half the problem overnight. Why not do it? Um, but I mean, that's an example. Another thing, disproportionately white, but not very much so, black men also kill themselves a great deal, but is the suicide epidemic. A lot of people don't know this, but in a typical year, there may be 18,000 homicides and about 45,000 suicides. I also talk about the combination of all these new drugs and texting out on the roadway. So we again got back up to 45,000 automobile deaths in the last year that I look at. So if you actually want to solve national problems, there are a whole bunch of things you can do from refunding the suicide hotline to just keeping your phone in your pants while you drive. We tend to be distracted from real issues by the BS in the media, which loves certain storylines. And race war, quote unquote, is one of those storylines. And so is person eaten by shark, though. Turn the TV <laughs> off. It's all bullshit. <laughs> you know, because your chapter two, I had a, I, I have like, I can't tell you how many different places I got this underlined, but instances where there was confrontation between people of color and people who were not, and how they got blown way out of proportion, and how the media just ran with the story. Because, hey, it's on the front page. It's this white person did something really bad to this black person when it was probably one of the most innocuous things ever. Yeah, and this is, I mean, and so far when I've said things like there are plenty of rich black people and so on, I've had kind of a centrist, neutral perspective on some of these issues. This is one I'm pretty right wing on and where I think the anger a lot of people feel is justified. So chapter two of the book is there is no race war. There's certainly not one against people of color, and Barbecue Becky was right. And I opened the book by talking about these incidents that became international stories that were all BS. This is a straight-up example of the media making up narratives. So the Barbecue Becky story was a situation in Oakland, California, just north of San Francisco, 
where the claim was that that's a very integrated community, you know, high income but high crime community. But the claim was that a white woman had been walking through a park, noticed a black family grilling, and had immediately come up to them and said, like, you know, why are you out here? Why are you ruining this nice park? What's wrong with you? Shoved one of them. A fist fight essentially broke out. Horrible racism. What actually happened, although, first of all, that would just be, you know, as a former Leo, that would just be a misdemeanor fighting charge in the worst case. But what actually happened in this case was that a woman who happened to be white, not a racist, works for Stanford, I believe her partner's black, but was walking through the park, and she noticed a whole bunch of people grilling with beer bottles and so on, as I recall the story, in what's called a dog and child run area of the park, where you're obviously not supposed to have fire, you're not supposed to have glass containers, every park has one of these. And she asked them if they could move out of the area of the park they were in to the next area of the park over where you can grill. And they said, no, get out of our face. And they started to fight. That's what everybody says if you just call the city. The media intentionally took this story and screwed it up. And this is one of a dozen stories like this, Coupon, Carl, and Chicago, and so on. So I break down a bunch of these. And then I actually look at the figures for interracial crime. And I look at this claim on the part of many black leaders that there's a war on, uh, quote-unquote, people of color. There's a book out right now called Genocide, the War on POC by Benjamin Crump, who is Trayvon Martin's attorney. And what I find is that there's very emphatically no war on people of color. Um, interracial crime, first of all, overall is a tiny percentage of crime unless you're talking about robbery in certain big cities. If you're talking about murder, which I think is what most people actually use as a proxy for crime, uh, 85% of murders of whites, an incredible 94% of murders of blacks are done by people of the same race. The person most likely to kill you is your ex-wife. So <laughs> I, I break all this down, and then I go a level deeper. I was, I was interested in this. And I've only seen this in two books before. I look at the breakdown of interracial crime among races. And what I find is that interracial crime virtually every year since 1980, if you're looking at blacks and whites, has been at least 70% black on white, which is to say there is three times as much or four times as much black on white crime as there is white on black crime. And that's not even necessarily surprising. There are five times as many white people as there are black people. Even if you don't think the math works that way, whites have you know, twice as much wealth, if not money. The black crime rate is higher overall. So that's not a surprise. Intelligent people can discuss that, discuss which race gets it worse, etc. What you can't do is just make up a story that there's more white on black crime than vice versa. That's just open lying, and that's what we see a lot in the media. Well, you see also in the media where Trump is a traitor. He is a racist. He is a tra he's one of the worst people in the world. And you again <laughs> break this down. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about Trump. I think I think Trump would be viewed as a standard, very good center-right president if he could stay off Twitter. Like Trump without Twitter, basically <laughs> Ronald Reagan. I mean, that's literally accurate. The Every accusation, when I ask buddies of mine that are left-leaning black or Italian-American in the two most recent cases, guys from the unions, they're not radically liberal when it comes to social issues, they go to church – why do you hate Trump so much? The answer always is, well, look at the crazy fight he picked with the president of Mexico for congresswomen. You can almost just fill it in week by week. That's stupid. You know, it lowered my portfolio by $100. Why would anyone do that? That's the only criticism you will ever hear of Trump if you ask anyone outside of an elite college. I can virtually guarantee it. But um, I, I do talk in the book about some of these claims about Trump. I, I mentioned this in both of my books. And again, you have a combination of some genuinely dumb statements, maybe two or three all time, combined with wild, wild misrepresentation. 
So an example would be um, Trump was asked at one point, President Trump was asked, what do you think about gangs like, um, it wasn't La Raza, it was, what is it, um, MS-13, that happened to be entirely made up of Hispanic individuals. And Trump said, well, I think they're animals. And the spin on that was Trump calls groups of Hispanic individuals animals without any comment on the fact that they'd specifically asked him about Spanish gangs. So I, I go into a bit of, not necessarily a defense, but a bit of a discussion of Trump and just make the point that nobody ever called this guy a racist until he ran against Hillary Clinton. People said he had a big mouth. I mean, people said he wasn't great with women, <laughs> but nobody ever said he hated Not I mean, it's some evidence, you know, but nobody ever said that he was a bigot. I mean, Dr. Ben Carson's one of the highest ranking guys in the cabinet. That's just the default left-wing response to everything. Like, I'm called a white supremacist all the time, and I'm black. <laughs> Gee. Bunch oh, of Nazis. My normal co-host, C.S. <laughs> Bennett, is not with us. I've got Dr. Ernie Panza who's sitting in. Ernie, go ahead. Jump in. <laughs> No, I, I, I just been listening. I, I, I think that um, what you're saying is very good, and I think that we need this type of education and knowledge, you know. And, and I, I kind of go back to the Rodney King case years and years ago, and before Rodney died, you know, they asked him what he thought about what happened to him, and uh, he just said, "I don't just, I can't understand why we all just can't get along. Our, our problem is." Not not with individuals uh, of being different colors. I, uh, all four of my grandparents came from Italy, from a little place called Calabria in the southern okay. uh, west of uh, of Italy. And you know, I think that uh, you know, if we live with our heart and not our head, we can all get along well. You find that people that go to church, and I, I love going to African American churches. One of my very very best friends for forty years happens to be not not the John Gray that wrote uh, the book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, but John Gray, the bishop, very high up in the African-American church. And John and I have been friends for 40 years, and I love going to African-American churches because they fill with their hearts in, in church. They They enjoy being with each other. And I go to John's church. And I'm the only white person there, and they accept me like you know, like a brother or one of them. And most of those people, not most, but let's say many of the people in that church were patients of mine when uh, I was in practice. And you know, when I walk up to the door, and this is, and I've been out of practice now for 30 years, and the older people that knew me, when I walk up to the door, they'll hug me, and women will kiss me on the cheek, and they'll say, oh, my God, you're home. So glad you're back. And I think that we have to feel that way about each other and not just say, well, uh, he's black and he's white or he's Hispanic. I have two daughter-in-laws that are Hispanic, and they're, and, and, uh, they're both good. And, and the one is just absolutely wonderful. And, mm-hmm. like, and I have five grandchildren that are uh, American-Hispanic. You know, so, and I have one daughter that lives in Oslo, Norway, and uh, three children there that are Norwegian-American. So I, I don't think it's nationality. I don't think it's color. I think it's individual. And we've been sold a bill of goods about good, bad, or 
crime or all the things that you're explaining. And I think we have to go back to the whole concept, you know, as, as uh, the Dalai Lama when asked about, you know, you, you control, you have all these different religions in the world and you have all these people in your religion that are under you. Can you boil it down to maybe something simple to uh, how we can all get along? And he said, yeah, it's very easy. He said, help everybody you can. And if you can't help them, don't hurt them. And that's about the whole simple truth. You know, if, if you can help a person, please do. If you can't help them, don't step in their way. So anyway, I'm enjoying uh, what, what you're saying, and it's making me kind of think about a lot of things a little differently and kind of put them in perspective. And your last guest, Annie, was wonderful also. I didn't say anything because uh, she was just just going on and on and on, and I didn't interrupt her train of thought. So thank you. <laughs> Sure. Um, that's an interest, interesting and insightful comment there. So, I mean, a couple of different things. First, I agree with you. The individual is the smallest minority. I mean, if you want to look at how laws affect minorities, um, one of the easiest questions to ask is, well, how do they affect an individual person? Uh, if we're talking about adding 10% to the federal regulations, which Mr. Obama did, Mr. Trump repealed, I mean, what does that do if you're a shopkeeper in Brooklyn? So, I mean, I, th- I think that's a valid point, first of all. The basic comment that I would draw from that when you're talking about race is that the idea of individuality certainly extends into these racial conversations. So it can be valid to say, well, blacks have 2.4 times the crime rate of whites, or whites are 1.9 times as likely as blacks to be mentally ill or something like that. Both those are real statistics, by the way. But what that means, those are 2% figures in both cases. What that means is that 98% of both blacks and whites are law-abiding people who aren't crazy. Like, it might be more likely that you're crazy, bluntly, if you're Caucasian. It might be more likely you're an armed robber if you're black. But in both cases, the actual risk of that is about 2%. So it's very worth keeping that in mind. And I can't resist adding, as someone who does a lot of media scrutiny, the Rodney King case, this is never said, this is another taboo, but was another one of these almost made-up stories. Um, I don't think anyone denies that the cops near the end of the Rodney King video overreacted and beat the hell out of this guy. I don't think anyone denies that. But the full Rodney King story is that a guy who was very drunk and on PCP was driving through California, heavily populated areas, almost hit a kid, for about two hours. He was finally stopped by the police. He was told to get out of the car. Now, there are three other people with him in the car, all of whom were black. None of them got hurt at all. None of them fought with the police at all. I don't think anyone went to jail. Rodney King gets out of the car, starts taunting the cops, fights with the cops for about three minutes, finally gets knocked to the ground, and that's when the beating happened. The reason the Rodney King beating video became so famous is that I believe it's ABC LA, but you can Google this. You can check out TV station edits Rodney King video. The TV station that ran the Rodney King video just cut out everything but him, excuse me, getting his ass kicked. So that was the first one of these narratives, like, for no reason, police beat a black man. And the full video shows a bloody fight, and it shows these other people who are black sitting there and not being hurt. So that was the first one of these racial narratives in the modern era when virtually no one's racist. Uh, the storyline became Daryl Gates' brutal racist LAPD attacks innocent black people, and that, that just wasn't real. Well, you know, we also have people that make money office stirring up the pot people such as the right reverend al sharpton uh they make a lot of money by pushing this narrative forward and that way they get the donations in they get the nice little gold chains around their neck like uh sharpton is known to wear and uh it, 
if they don't push that story, they're not their front page. They're not there in the in the news every single night, and they're not making money. It, it's a money maker for them. Yeah, and I, I would go beyond Al Sharpton. And even Al Sharpton, I notice, has moved on to the uh, Boss and Brooks Brothers suits instead of the big gold chains he used to wear. But I mean, it, well beyond Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton's a little guy. It's it is absolutely accurate. Although I mean, you must have had some interesting stories about him in New York. But uh, it is accurate to say that there's a business of victimization. It's not an especially big business compared to tech, but it's probably larger than, for example, saleable liquors. And, I mean, if you look at the, – the Southern Poverty Law Center is really the group I call out when I speak on campuses and so on and kind of ask, what are you doing? How many cases did you bring this year? Southern Poverty Law Center has a well-invested endowment of $470 million, half a billion dollars. Now, that's the endowment. I don't know about you, but my girlfriend and I put maybe 5% of our earnings into the market. I mean, they, they take in over a period of years a lot more than that. So that's a little more than my college. And I think that when you're talking about this, when you're talking about uh, NAACP, probably similar level of budget. If you have a billion-dollar budget, throws the Image and Essence Awards. If you have a billion-dollar budget based around fighting racism, there better be some racism for you to fight. And we get into that in hate crime hoax, where a substantial number of these people that were falsifying hate crimes were campus radicals, were people whose whole job was to fight hate, quote-unquote. There's so much to talk about in this book, and it's a very, very interesting book. And you put down 10 facts, you know, that uh, that are actually falsehoods. And then you turn around, you break it down, and you explain why. Um one of the things that you you did, and I had a laugh because I read the section uh, on Chapter 3 where different groups perform differently, and you were talking about SAT scores and IQs. And just out of curiosity, I pulled up an online IQ test, and I I went through the whole test, and I said, All right, let me see what, how I do. And I was surprised. I scored 118. So I'm a little bit – Okay. I'm not, I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. You know, it's it's a cultural thing. It's not genetic. It's not based upon your color or your gender, but is it, it's a cultural thing on how people perform. Yeah. So one of the things one of the things I talk about in this book, and it's interesting that you obviously really read this book in depth, went through it, because I mean we're getting to some of the kind of wonky or scientific points in the book. I normally lead with bashing Black Lives Matter or the alt right or something like that, and you know throw out a few banter lines. But yeah, the key point in this book is really an attack on this whole idea of institutional, structural, et cetera, racism. Whether you're, you're arguing that for whites or blacks or whatever. And the point there is that just showing that people finish at different rates or different levels doesn't suffice to prove bigotry because a whole bunch of things from culture to genetics in some cases, especially if you're talking about men and women, opportunity, interests, predicts how different groups do on different tests. So the IQ thing, I agree with you, IQ is cultural. Um, you'd have to really work hard to convince me that Irishmen, for example, were more historically civilized than the Chinese or West Africans. So if Irishmen score higher in the USA, I would assume it's because of study habits or something like that. I would assume alcohol consumption has decreased, making a joke but also telling the truth, that kind of thing. <laughs> but in this cultural world, we see that different groups do dramatically differently on tests. When it comes to tests of science, men score 50 or 60 points ahead of women. When it comes to IQ tests, uh, blacks score about a 93. We've actually been improving our score. 
Um, white score about a 99. Asian score about 103. So no one, again, is doing badly. But if there's a 10-point edge for Asians over blacks, you would assume that that would affect something like who gets into the most elite colleges and so on. So, again, just to repeat, before you look at any group dominating any field and say, well, that's racism against white athletes are being slow or that's racism against blacks because that's endemic in America, racism against Asians. The first thing you should ask is how many people are qualified to do the thing that we're looking at? And when it comes to IQ scores, the percentage of men and women or the percentage of blacks, whites, and Asians that are qualified to do thing X is very often different. Well, you know, I will make an observation. This is from just personal. Uh, Women do start to do a lot better in math and science if they have a music background, whether it's through an interest uh, instrument uh, or singing. But if you have a musical background, it for some reason it helps you when you go into math and science. And for me, I played classical violin, and mathematics was I was just a whiz at that. So you know, it also depends upon how you are educated too. What level of oh, education yeah. you you have access to? Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. Interesting from an intelligent woman. I mean, I hadn't known that. So women are stereotyped as the artists, but as a woman, if you train in an art, you then do as well in mathematics as the guys. That's absolutely fascinating, and this is. Yeah, this is one of those things. I think that there are a whole bunch of conservative, if you will, or neighborhood, if you will, or just kind of common sense solutions to problems. So most people, I think, would say women are more artistic than men. More, There are more men that tend to be big, dumb mooks. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. So as a result, men have a slight advantage in math. But if you give women a year of training in the arts and the math edge disappears, that's an actual way to solve that problem. I'd be really interested in seeing that done as a program rather than just throwing a bunch of women in labs and saying, compete with the boys. That tends to be sort of the big (laughs) government approach. Like everyone does four hours of morale building today. If you've ever been in the army or a large institution, I mean, it's, and it's a running joke. So that that's fascinating, but yeah, a, a ton of things determine a ton of different things determine everything in your life. And that's why it's so stupid to look at people as representatives of their race or their class or whatever. There are a thousand things, actually, that determine who you are. One of them that determines your IQ or your physical fitness is your social class. I mean, obviously, if you can afford to go to college, you'll be smarter. Um, The IQ gap between blacks and whites closes during college. It's just one of those things. If you can afford to pay for eight years of education, you can only be so dumb by the end. But, I mean, hard work also affects your IQ score. Are you willing just to go down to the library and read books? So IQ is one of those things, again, that has a 100 different sources, maybe race, although I doubt to any large extent. We know gender, but certainly social class, certainly interest, and most importantly, how much you study. The, the only point in the book really is that whatever reason IQ, whatever reason causes IQ to exist, it's silly not to adjust for IQ. So, I mean, if you find that 20% of Harvard is Asian, that doesn't mean Harvard is discriminating against whites. What it means is that Asians are doing very well on the test. So that that should be everyone's first hypothesis when they see these kind of differences. Well, I'd also add in family background. You know, how was that child raised? If it was in a two-parent stable household or if there was discord in uh, in the household, that affects how a child learns. Whether or not they were getting three good meals a day affects how the child learns. There's so many other factors 
that that have a huge, huge effect on that. Yeah, I mean, so I don't think anyone who's not a racist thinks that there are substantial differences in either IQ on the one hand or athletic potential on the other hand between blacks and whites, larger than 3%, let's say. When those gaps do exist, I mean, my, my guess, but this is pretty much supported by science, would be you're looking at a whole bunch of stuff. Like one of the biggest predictors of intelligence, specifically for men, is father in the home. Um, I think that most of, most of the gaps between black and poor white communities on the one hand and middle class whites on the other hand would close if there were more dads in the home. So fatherlessness is one of those issues that's purely cultural and really recent. So throughout almost all of history, if you're talking about Europe, if you're talking about West Africa, the civilized portion of Africa, if you're talking about Asia, bastard was an insult, a pretty serious one. The idea that you would not have a father or that your father would choose not to support your mother was very insulting. It was the basis for sword and gunfights. So today, the illegitimacy rate for African Americans is 74%. It's about 40%, 37.5% for whites. So that's something that we haven't seen before probably in human history. And, yeah, that has to be one reason we're not getting smarter at the same rate as the Chinese, for example. Yeah, when you have a welfare system that will support a, a woman and the children as long as the father is not in the house. It, the, the benefits decrease if there are two parents in that household. So when our government helps promote single-parent households, how do we expect the kids to succeed? Well, I think that's a fascinating point. This gets into the basic idea. I was talking to my students about good and evil uh, a couple of days ago, and one of them said, well, it seems like all this ties together. I mean, like if you're healthy and stable, you haven't been sexually abused, then you tend to respect women, you want to have stable relationships, and that leads to a marriage because we have a formal way to codify a stable relationship and so on. And similarly, when you look at people in what we consider evil or failing circumstances, there tend to be a lot of things working together at once to drag you down. Um, my, my only point would be that I don't think these things are the result of one victim-y reason. I don't, think oh this, I don't think the thing dragging black people down or whatever is racism. But obviously, yeah, there's a ton of stuff. Like if your country has an institutionalized welfare system, and that means that there are more people that are not working but are being paid to have kids, and the one caveat is that you can't have a father, then you also have you know, an institutionalized system of fatherlessness and so on. And that obviously contributes to lower IQ. And eventually you get into kind of a caste system. I mean, there are countries like India that literally have this, where you have a ruling class where people tend to be married. Their, tent, their background tends to be a stable trade like blacksmithing. They tend to send their kids to school here in the USA. And then on the other hand, you have people that have been institutionalized and conditioned over generations to do what's considered scut work, to think of themselves in that fashion and so on. And hopefully we'll avoid that in the USA. And one way to do that would just be to stop giving people money for free. <laughs> well, you also talk about performance uh, instead of uh, for success, where we should be a nation of meritocracy, but instead people want to be rewarded based upon their gender or their, their, their um, oh, good Lord, their skin color. Well, yeah, I, I think to a certain extent, uh, you can almost cut that sentence down to people want to be rewarded. Like, everyone wants to be told they're beautiful, sexy, witty. I mean, when it comes to things like driving or sex where no one ever tells you you're bad, 97% of people think they're good. It's my favorite statistic all time, social sciences. So, yes, of course, people want to hear that they're wonderful. 
And this is why movements like black radicalism, or for that matter, the Klan, tend to attract losers. People who are successful, for example, I mean, I don't think I'm any kind of a lord, but I have a JD, a PhD, I'm not hideous, I'm fun to talk to, tend to identify based on characteristics that have actually given them success. People that are not necessarily very successful tend to identify based on sort of big groups that they just fall into. And that can be really anything. I mean, I have friends of mine that are, you know, Green Bay Packers fans, a state I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, but who are passionate <laughs> about the damn Green Bay Packers, who have like a hollowed out piece of actual cheese at home that they wear to games and this kind of thing. You have to put like a liner in it if you have an old school cheese. And if you have a plastic one, you don't need to apparently. But I mean, <laughs> this is serious stuff, but it's the same thing with race. Like if you spend a lot of time talking about how black or how Irish or how Mexican you are, my suspicion would be that you probably haven't made a whole lot of money. I mean, like, there's a reason people identify that way. But the thing that makes this more than just something annoying at a bar is that there are rich, predatory people that are exploiting these insecure people and telling them that this racism or whatever does exist. That's a problem. Like, the head of the SPLC probably knows open-eyed who they – I won't say serve. That has religious implications, but what they're doing. I don't think they believe that there's a race war coming. I think they like having a half billion dollars around. So. Well, like you said, I did read the book. I read the whole entire book. And one of the things you do address is immigration. And we do need a sane immigration policy. Now, three of my grandparents came through here legally. My husband is from his family came here legally. At one point, you had to have already housing available, a a job lined up, a sponsor, and you have to promise to not be on the government dole. We don't require that anymore. We don't have a same policy. So in other words, you can come here illegally and we'll still give you the welfare, the food stamps, the Section 8 housing, Medicaid, uh, Obama phone. That's all right. You don't have to obey our laws. And by the way, we won't arrest you. Well, I mean, so there's some different things there. Yeah, essentially most of that's correct. Yeah, I do feel we need to stay in immigration policy. That's actually the title of the chapter. And obviously, like, you can quibble with an individual person's description of immigration in the past. Like, when I talk to my Italian or, you know, Eastern European buddies about immigration, their family got here a couple generations ago. I mean, I strongly suspect the sponsor often would be, quote, unquote, your cousin Vinny, you know, and the guaranteed job would be you, you know, sometimes working at a butcher shop or whatever. But, yes, we did have very specific – at baseline, what you described is what's called the public charge rule. So there was a fairly absolute rule that if you came here, you couldn't receive any kind of welfare spending, any kind of state subsidies. Uh, This is state by state, but in most states, you couldn't get unemployment if you were here, which is pretty savage. The basic idea was if you came here from another country, you needed to either make your keep as one of the most successful 50 or so percent of citizens, or we were going to send you back. That might sound kind of savage, but we didn't really see any particular reason to have non-functional immigrants in the USA. U.S. immigration policy changed dramatically with a couple of things, which I talk about in the book. But one is the 1965 Immigration Act, known as Hart Seller. And I would also add that another is the Reagan amnesty and the provisions that came along with that, under a Republican, uh-huh. by the way. But I mean, uh, yeah. between Hart's, on that one. Hart, yeah. But I mean, between Hart Seller and the Reagan amnesty, the rule right now, and again, either of you guys can correct me, but to come into the United States, the first principle is family reunification. Second principle is refugee resettlement. And then finally you get into three, which is H-1B-1, H-1B-2, which that translates to needed skills and tasks. So most people that come to the USA are the relatives of people that 
already are in the USA. And there are a very large number of these protected categories. Like if you're a wife or a minor child, you can basically just enter. Your average wait delay is less than a year. Um, if you're a father, a mother, a sister, a sister-in-law, a brother, you can still come in, although you might have to wait a, actually a fair period of time. But what this means in practice is that over, say, 20 years, entire Bosnian or Haitian villages can be recreated in the USA, and we, in fact, do see this. Um, there's a much higher percentage of individuals that don't speak English primarily in the USA today than there was even during the last great wave of immigration. So what I basically say is that some of this is silly. Um, obviously, we should start enforcing the public charge rule again. It's absolutely crazy that you can come to another country and go on the dole. Um, we should cut back the number of categories where you can come into the USA. Like, I'm fine with wife, but I mean grown son over 18, brother. I mean, those two, those two guys sound like they can apply themselves. You know, so I, I propose some solutions to U.S. immigration policy. One of them that's considered kind of radical, but that just seems to me to be common sense, is to eliminate what's sometimes mockingly called the anchor baby rule which is actually called birthright citizenship. And that's the idea that if two illegal immigrants come to the USA and they have a baby, that baby is a resident of the United States. And that's a holdover from the period just after slavery. We were trying to find out who the mothers and fathers of individual slave children were. We also had an inflow of free blacks at the time from Jamaica, the West Indies. I'm sure not every you know, shoeless Irish guy that got off the boat necessarily had you know, a full stack of papers with them. So we basically just said, if your kid is born in the USA, they're an American. But that was before planes. You can now literally come to the USA from anywhere in the world, have a kid, and that kid is a citizen. This, by the way, is how illegal immigrants receive welfare benefits. We're not actually so crazy that if you're openly illegal, we'll give you money. But most welfare benefits like TAMP or WIC are paid out specifically to dependent children. The mother just provides a social security code. So if you are an illegal but you have four kids, those four kids, quote-unquote, are Americans, and they can receive every welfare benefit. That's crazy. I'd end that rule, and I'd probably close the anchor baby loophole totally. Well, your book is very fascinating, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Wilford Riley, it has been a pleasure having you on with us. I did have one little thing I picked out to pick a bone with you, and this drives me absolutely crazy. We only got just a couple of moments left. Um, Everyone sure. keeps on talking about the alt-right, and the alt-right is not right-leaning. It is a fascist. It's just a step away from full socialism. It's a fascist movement. So I would, why do people always want to put the alt-right on conservatives when it has nothing to do with conservative ideals? Well, I think that that's a very interesting point. So first of all, when people ask me my political leanings, I tell them I'm a businessman with a gun. And everyone kind of gets that. It means that I'm going to be fairly likely to vote Republican. It means I own X number of suits. It means I don't have any patience with people that don't want to work, blah, blah, blah. You understand pretty much who I am from that. Uh, another uh, good buddy of mine called himself a country boy farmer. Same thing. Like, you know who he is. Uh, you would probably expect the two of us to dislike each other. But in fact, we get along fine. Anyway, so uh, similarly, I get what you're saying, that the alt-right is very different from traditional kind of throne and alter conservatism. I think the main reason people call them the alt-right is that they call themselves the alt-right. Um, if you look at the most radical guys on the alt-right, like Nick Fuentes, for example, they very specifically brand themselves as America First conservatives. 
And what they're trying to do is inter- what they're trying to do is introduce the same poison to the Republican Party that the Al Sharptons did to the Democratic Party, by the way. What they're pitching is a combination of acquiescence to the easiest to agree with conservative ideas like no late-term abortion, but combined with sort of a socialist system for white people. That's what the alt-right wants. So I'll actually give you that debating point. They're not traditional conservatives, but conservatism is going to have to figure out what to do with them. I mean, a lot of these boys have been showing up at Ben Shapiro, Charlie Kirk. I mean, people you can't deny are mainstream conservatives. Donald Trump Jr., who kind of backhanded them. But, I mean, saying things like, well, you know, you're, for example, Donald Trump, one of the questions was, well, you're dating a former sex worker. Do you think women should be, quote, unquote, whores? And if you're trying to appeal to anyone with that kind of talk, it's going to be conservatives. So conservatives are now facing the Al Sharptonization of the right. And it's up to conservatives to say, well, no. I mean, we don't have any problem with General Colin Powell being a black man. I'm actually fairly confident mainstream conservatism will say that. But, I mean, until that happens, I don't think you'll see the alt-right looking for a home in the Democratic Party. Well, I guess maybe I was the first one to say it. Wilfred, it has been a pleasure having you on. Welcome you back anytime. Sounds good. I love talking to you guys as well. All right. Wilfred Riley, check him out. The book is called Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. It's an excellent – you can find it up on Amazon. Just click on the show page, the description. You can take you straight over there to purchase the book. Ernie, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. And uh, Curtis will not be here again on the 28th, so maybe if you want, step in again on the 28th. Oh, I would love to, but I can't. I have to be in South Carolina, 28th, 29th, and the 1st of March speaking. This is my 34th year of doing this chiropractic convention in South Carolina. So I'll be in your state those three days. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It has been our pleasure. I want to thank everyone for joining us over on Facebook as well as over here on Blog Talk Radio and SHR Media. We will be back here uh, next Friday, and I have no idea who I have lined up. (laughs) I'll take a look and I'll put the page up. So until then, I want to say good night to everyone, and God bless, and have a safe, happy weekend, and happy Valentine's Day to everyone. So take your honey and give her or him a big kiss. Until then, I say good night and God bless. Thank you, Annie. Happy Valentine's Day.